This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the true facts come above boards to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high position, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 35. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, um, you know, as, uh, I don't know, as we're recording this, is there still a nor'easter pummeling the East Coast, call it? Um, well, there, it was snowy, but now, now it's not really pummeling. Uh, but it is a very appropriate episode because it's the, well, it's, I guess it's not this night, but tomorrow night is the, the winter solstice. Uh, mm. Right, the darkest which, night which of the year. Which is, by definition, uh, the, the darkest, darkest night of the winter. Yeah, the darkest uh, winter night there is. Yes, and it's also yeah. uh, just like you know, on a very uh, even spookier note, it's the uh, it's gonna be the the date of a grand conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn. Very rare and very uh, portentous astronomical event. Um, yes, I noticed the, the other day. Solstice, so very. Uh, yeah. It, it's it's actually happening on the winter solstice? Yes. Wow. Which is, you know, very, yeah, exactly. Very, very portentous, uh, you would think. Um, Aquino is probably imagine. kicking himself on the astral plane or in hell, wherever yeah. he is, uh, that mm-hmm. he did he wasn't, you know, around to, around to, yeah. to do a working for that. Right. Raise his yeah. SS dagger to the sky and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, talk to set. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's, there it's definitely, definitely will be a lot of, there'll be a lot of witchery happening. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I think as we're going to talk about today, I think maybe there's been a lot of witchery happening leading into this very dark winter, yes. dark winter, yeah. dark, <laughs> winter. dark winter, uh, to paraphrase, uh, the, Winter. To paraphrase our president-elect, Joseph Robinette Biden, um, yeah, we are now, we are now, you know, on the cusp of officially, at least, you know, entering into the season, which uh, kind of very notably, I think it jumped out to a lot of people, he is described as the dark winter to come. Yeah, I feel like we've been in a dark winter. Uh, It's cold, it's really dark, I've definitely felt the darkness this winter more than in prior winters like how early Same. it becomes dark it's just like uh yeah uh, i think i've noticed that with dark. just about everybody that it's it's sort of hit you on a more 
physiological and psychological Yeah, I wonder why that is. I feel like I have seasonal affective disorder this year, not really having had it in the past. I don't get, like, why. Maybe it's because, like, we're all so alone, you know? Uh, (laughs) I think so. And, And, you know, still inside. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I tend to forget, you know, I... I've, I've been getting sun uh, throughout this pandemic. I mean, certainly, you know, um, being in California, you can usually walk around. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, yeah, but it's probably warm there. It's, yeah, not here. It's not bad. Uh, it gets, a, you know, a little bit, little bit nippy at night, but certainly oh, nothing to whine about yeah. <laughs> on the podcast. Like, oh, it's like 48 uh, degrees, you know, wham, wham. Mm, okay, um, right, I've yeah. experienced worse, and but I, you do notice that, especially if you're not a natural morning person, uh, which I would say I am not, that the amount of available daylight that you get exposed to, even in a place like Southern California, really drops off uh, when they do mm-hmm. daylight savings time. So I don't know. I'm popping some vitamin D. You know, maybe we'll come back around that in today's episode. Uh, mm-hmm. I think yeah, probably good. everybody should be popping some. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's also, you know, potentially... Uh, might have some kind of prophylactic effects against... Uh, Earlier this year, I was prescribed like a like a clinical dose of vitamin D because my vitamin D was so low. Uh, mm-hmm. But I haven't gotten COVID, so uh, yeah, that comorbidity uh, was not, uh, you know, I'm not evidence of that. But um, yeah, it's definitely something that can happen, especially if you live in New England and uh, it's yes. all the time. And uh, yeah, uh, having lived in northern latitudes before, I'm not a total taffy ass California beach kid. I've lived in, mm-hmm. uh, some chilly climbs, some dark climbs. And it's funny. I, I never thought about it back then to be like, Oh, I should probably take like some vitamins because it's literally depressing to live at this latitude. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but now it kind of seems like, eh, why not? Um, though somebody did point out in the grotto, just, you know, this is our health tips of the week. Uh, you know, probably want to take some magnesium along with that vitamin D3 because it helps uh, the absorption in the body. So maybe if you don't get enough magnesium, your body might not be absorbing as much of the D3 that it could. Uh, we need to get our, uh, we need to have our own like rainforest type product for like, survive, <laughs> you know, we need like, get some iodine. Know. Yeah. Yeah, we need, like, the Shield of Jihad or something. Like, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, it's, like, some kind of patented cocktail of vitamin D and, like, magnesium. Subliminal salts. Jihad, Artemisinin, um, yeah. uh, North Vietnamese uh, uh, National Liberation Front approved. That's actually true. Yeah. Um, developed by communists for communists, uh, you know, to eradicate malaria and maybe stop COVID if Bill Gates doesn't monopolize it first. Um, mm. so yeah, mm, yeah, yeah, maybe we can launch you, a line like a that. A nootropic like, uh, thing too, you know, kind of like, yeah, super male vitality, brain force type situation. Like, sure, know, something sure. To, yeah. Um, we'll, 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 we'll work on it. Yeah, you know, we'll, anything, yeah, yeah. uh, I mean, yeah. Or, or y'all could just go run and get the vaccine. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling that the, yeah. the listenership on this podcast is at least uh, a, a wee bit ambivalent about yeah, probably being first in am- line. Ambivalent, yeah, um, I would say. Uh, and I think that, I don't know, I feel like most people are extremely ambivalent about the vaccine, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, I don't really know anyone who's super eager to take it. And on one hand, like, you know, 
I think that some of the stuff around the vaccine is a little bit facile, um, and, like, I almost feel like there is, like, a certain, like, almost obnoxious contrarian impulse in some of the vaccine skepticism, but on the other hand, like, I do, like, uh, fully understand it, and I've been, like, expressing it to an extent, like, since the beginning, especially with the nature of some of the vaccines being, like, mRNA, Mm -hmm. uh, and, Mm -hmm. like, just, like, you know, uh, the vaccine, uh, isn't really, it's, it seems like we already have come to kind of, uh, accept the fact that, although maybe it created, like, sort of a, a break in the clouds for some people, and people are like, oh, you know, this is gonna be the antidote, and, like, once there's a vaccine, then this will all be over, now people are starting to realize, like, oh, wait, like, the vaccine isn't gonna make this end, um, mm-hmm. and, like, you know, which probably makes people even more reluctant to get it, which, like, will even further mitigate any benefit that the vaccine, like, might have had. Um, yeah, that's an interesting uh, you know, feedback uh, loop of, of, yeah. uh, just getting, lo- getting really just bummed out by, by the dark winter vibes that, you I know, think this that, thing. Yeah, I think that everyone, yeah, I... is, like, the psychic costs of, like, all this are really, like, coming to the fore, People are yes. expressing it like in many different ways, um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not something that like again, as I've said on the podcast before, I do not envy the people whose job it is to. I mean, leaving aside like possible like sus vampires who are like you know plotting a pandemic to like subjugate everyone and like enforce transhumanism, like sure. you know, uh, I wouldn't envy being like your average bureaucrat who has to like come up with some kind of response to the situation. Uh, no. because yeah, it's a nightmare, um, I, uh, for everyone <laughs> living it and you know, yeah, uh, I, I listened, for... I listened to a zoom, a kind of a town hall Q and a thing with, I guess it was LA County health experts earlier this week. And they just kind of, yeah, I did not envy their position, nor did it, what did I come away particularly, uh, filled with confidence about kind of the yeah. impact, the positive impact this vaccine is going to have. I mean, every, every question was something along the lines of, you know, if I get this vaccine, can I still like sort of catch the virus? Like, even if I don't suffer from it, like, can I still be infected with it and pass it on to people that I live with or people that I interact with? And they basically didn't have like a good answer for it. They were like, we don't think so, <laughs> but like nobody was willing to kind of like go out. Cause I think that we literally don't know if it does that. And so if it's a kind of thing where it just protects you from getting sick from COVID, but you can still, kind of like catch it and spread it around to people then it becomes a thing where well then i guess everybody really does have to get the vaccine because then you could still spread it and kill people who aren't vaccinated hypothetically um and that sounds like a much bigger lift than something that just like shields you from even being able to kind of get like get it at all so like it has nowhere to spread to it seems like it can still float around for quite a while uh i mean if everyone's vaccinated I don't know, like can presumably it will die out sooner or later, but I just noticed there, there was, you know, there's so much kind of perception management, even going down to these like County health official levels, you know, from Mm -hmm. up to the governors and then obviously the white house. And then these, uh, these saintly high priests of science in their glittering white acolyte robes on television every day telling you with this kind of a priestly confidence 
you know, what the deal is. And um, it it's not, there's a lot of disjointed stuff. And I think there's a lot of like benign kind of, I don't know if I would always call it gaslighting, but sometimes it feels that way. Like there was one example where a guy asked, like there were several iterations, like I said, of this question of like, can I still get it and spread it to people even if I'm not sick? But one guy asked, like, if I get the vaccine, can I still catch, uh, if I get the vaccine, will I be able to spread it, you know, get kind of get the vaccine and, or get the virus and spread it to people in my household? And they kind of almost like willfully like misunderstood his question and were like, no, 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 sir. No, no, no. Getting the vaccine does not give you COVID-19. So don't yeah. worry. You won't infect anybody by getting the vaccine. And it's like, yo, that wasn't his fucking question. Yeah. Like his question <laughs> was like, can you still get it elsewhere if you have the vaccine, even if you don't get affected? Like, I don't know. It just seems like there's a real difficulty in trying to, uh, like, spell any of this out with clarity. And I think that just leads to... Yeah, just the really kind of dispiriting vibes of this, Mm -hmm. like, you know, now that we're like 10 months into uh, the dark year, really. And this is, you know, it it is feeling kind of darker than ever, because there's also all of these social, economic and political consequences and huge changes happening that kind of feel more out of the hands of any kind of like democratic accountability as limited as that was, you know, before 2020, that it's really these kind of high level politicians and bureaucrats and then people like, um, you know, the, the head of the WEF, like Klaus Schwab, who just came out of fucking nowhere to be like, here's the business plan for how we're going to completely remake the global economy. Trust me, it'll be awesome. And we're going to have a great reset. And, you know, all the, and yeah, oh yeah, most small businesses are going to die. Um, and, uh, and Amazon and Google and like 10 companies are going to basically like be able to sort of take over huge swaths of the economy in this kind of uh, what's starting to almost feel a little bit like a managed collapse of certain or a bust out of certain parts of the economy. And to what extent that was planned in advance of COVID-19 of 2020 or to what extent this is like an on the fly uh, capitalizing on this crisis to do the things they wanted to do anyways. It, it's a very interesting question. And I think it harks back a little bit to, I mean, in that line, it it harks back a little bit to nine 11 where it's like, Mm -hmm. Hmm, if this like total black swan event happens, that is like the absolute best thing that could ever happen to the ghouls that just got into the White House and have all these kind of wacky plans waiting on the shelf to be implemented mm-hmm. from the Patriot Act to invading Iraq and everything. You start to wonder, like, wow, are these just the luckiest villains in the world that it just like just so happen to happen, you know, right on their watch? Yeah. And it almost feels I think that that fuels that sense, that vague sense uh, is fueling a lot of social anxiety as well, that it seems a little bit like certain people in powerful positions were like too, they were too prepared for certain aspects of this crisis and then seemingly completely bumbling and incompetent in other aspects of this crisis. Like the one in, in more cases, the ones you would actually care about them, you know, handling like Mm -hmm. having enough hospital capacity or coming up with sensible 
measures what, for like in what you aspect know. would you say that they were prepared uh well okay the, the the prepared thing is like the idea of like klaus schwab coming out with like a dedicated issue and i forget it was time or newsweek that was like all dedicated to the great reset so that that's the part that oh, i feel I like is kind mean. of yeah prepared. like there were certain things yeah that uh have benefited from like using this as kind of uh a platform from which to kind of advance things that yeah were in a way prepared in advance i think that yeah. that like it's remote work, remote like learning, case. things like that. Yeah, I think that uh, all remote that healthcare. Stuff, yeah, I think all that stuff has been, and like you know, this is kind of where the whole issue of dark winter, which is not only Joe Biden's catchphrase, but like an extremely influential and popular bioterrorism drill that was mm-hmm. performed in two thousand one. Uh, mm-hmm. Just you know, uh, it was sort of uh, the fuss around it was really in the aftermath of nine eleven. Uh, that sort of phrase creates the link between these two things that some people often uh, mm. perceive. Um, and yes. uh, yeah, and I think that uh, there is kind of a uh, in like with the, uh, that situation, I think that uh, you know, there are aspects of it in which like those types of things have allowed people to be prepared. Uh, but also ways in which like even those uh, exercises that they've done, have only been sort of heated in in certain ways, um, but I think that yeah, uh, on 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 many levels, uh, it's something that was anticipated. I mean, even like they understood that it would be not a matter of if, but a matter of when. I mean, that was all yeah. couched in Dark Winter. The exercise was all couched in bioterrorism, but uh, at the same time, uh, like even in other exercises that have been done and like, you know, just in the general conversation, everyone knew that eventually like something like this would happen. Um, it was like all those people have been talking about it as something that was a, a long standing expectation. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that what you say about doctors and like medical professionals and the medical profession in general is really interesting. And I think that as this has happened, we've had to really confront the, sort of, uh, yeah, you call them like priests in their acolyte robes. And I think that mm-hmm. we really had to confront the cultural complex that we have around like the authority of medical professionals or uh, mm-hmm. medical doctors. You know, they're yep. in a way like the most revered, sainted people in American culture. You know, there was like extreme, you know, even in the early days of COVID, uh, there was sort of this extreme outpouring of reverence and support for healthcare workers, which, you know, obviously they have not had it easy and they've done like a lot of work to try to keep people safe and well. So that's all good. But at the same time, uh, you know, kind of not very, uh, uh, not directly related to that per se. Uh, there definitely is a kind of unconfronted thing in American and perhaps like other cultures, uh, where doctors and healthcare providers are seen to be these kind of unimpeachable experts and the sort of guardians of this privileged knowledge uh, that, you know, is ultimate, the ultimate arbiter of, you know, what's correct and, like, how to perceive the world. Mm-hmm. And that's, I remember, like, uh, being in one seminar and, uh, you know, this uh, other uh, student uh, who, you know, to be fair, was, like, uh, was Arab, uh, you know, she was saying something about uh, Egyptian politics and she was kind of critiquing Saba Mahmoud, RIP, uh, and uh, who 
had, uh, you know, she had kind of made uh, Salva Mahmoud, that is, you know, her work is known for its sort of critique of uh, sort of feminist approaches to uh, the ethnography of Muslim women and how uh, sometimes these hermeneutics don't really uh, line up properly with how, uh, you know, uh, Islamic piety is experienced by women. You know, it's typical kind of like uh, do Muslim women need saving type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, she, uh, this other student was saying something like, uh, you know, when you think about the way that this uh, Islamic piety pr- plays out, you know, things like heaven and hell, you know, they're inherently more coercive, you know, uh, and I, you know, uh, got triggered and I was like, uh, disagree, <laughs> you know, I don't mm-hmm. think that God is more coercive than the state is. Uh, and she was like, I mean, well, think about your sheikh in a mosque versus your doctor in a hospital, you know, like one is like much more coercive. And I was like, what? Like, you know, the sheikh in a mosque, like in, you know, uh, certain countries, like he may very well be like a, a a representative of state power, but a doctor like absolutely is like, you know, uh, in the United States as well as in Egypt and other places. Not to uh, mention the, the potential for abuse of that power. Like, yeah, what if your doctor is like, you know, uh, cutting you like an Oxycontin prescription, you know, getting you hooked yeah, on exactly. opiates or something. I mean, there's, there's many, many ways in which doctors, right? like, you know, it's almost absurd to consider, like, the many ways in which, like, a doctor's authority can be coercive. But I just think that that, like, way of thinking... You know, uh, I think that is one of the I mean, if we're going to follow the kind of logic of like June 2020, where like, you know, racism is the real pandemic. Well, then I think blind faith in science and facts is also up there as one of the real psychological pandemics of our our, our era. It's very similar in a well, especially around like medicine, like and health and that area of science, like because you know, uh, yeah, and I mean, there really is a parallel with the cop thing because if you look at American popular culture, the two biggest like heroes, uh, like in terms of what you see in the media, are cops Mm -hmm. and doctors, like you know, absolutely across the board. It's oh, and like now people have started to be like, oh wait, like eh, like cops, like. But the doctor stuff is, like, almost increased in response, like, proportionally in response. In the same way that people have started to finally feel a little bit of skepticism around the police, the, you know, uh, reverence towards doctors. uh, It's it's actually, it's it's a very interesting political binary, a kind of yin and yang or a kind of dialectic that, like, mostly, I'd say primarily network TV does with their like endless array of cop and doctor shows is like cops are kind of more kind of lean, more red state and doctors are more like therapeutic liberal. It's like one uses state sanctioned violence to kill bad people or like, you know, catch bad people and like put them away, Mm -hmm. catch sickos and put them away. And then the other one uh, is basically, you know, there to use their professional training in a state sanctioned way to like save lives and heal to people ha- to heal the sickos instead of yeah they, like if you want to see a real versus yeah solve those like sickos. heal yeah heal the sickos or like destroy the sickos like either way they're <laughs> yeah. dealing with so the just, society of sickos heal the sickos yeah, yeah. um, um it, yeah, yeah it makes me think of like and i think it's gotten more kind of messianic uh like it, my favorite 
maybe both of our favorite of the kind of awful, they're mostly unwatchable, the doctor shows on network TV, but I think New Amsterdam is kind of like a great example. If anyone wants to be like sickened by pro doctor like agitprop <laughs> um, um this it sets him up as like basically like jesus christ uh like he yeah, is... well it's kind of like the wet it's very very much the west wing of doctor shows you know the yes. same sort of like uh just like uh, over like grandiose like just gushing like uh bizarre like yeah uh it, it's yeah it, i don't know that west wing vibe uh, yeah, but in a yeah. hospital context, yeah. Like, um, economic reality, like, does not intrude at all upon this world where it's, like, the only current, like, the only, the only currency circulating in this hospital is, like, caring enough. And, like, yeah. if you just care more and, like, you know, pour your heart out to, like, you know, make this hospital the best hospital ever, then magically things will, like, if you inspire all the other doctors to, like, feel, you know, uh, yeah, it's very bizarre. It's, like, he comes in with his almost, like, corporate consultant attitude of, like, wanting to, like, sigh up all the other doctors to, like, look at him as, like, this uh, cult leader who is, you know, uh, they can, like, rally behind and feel like they're saving the world in a very give them like a, a nice clean sentimental Sorkin narrative to make them feel like they're doing God's work, but you know, mm-hmm. or really well, doing he also science swaggers work. in and like fires a bunch of the doctors who put profits before patients. You know? <laughs> uh, no, really the show first like kind of positions um, itself as like, we don't need Medicare for all or anything like that. We just need more. Uh, I believe his name is a Dr. Goodwin. Max, Dr. Max Goodwin. Dr. Max Goodwin. Maximum Goodwin. Maximum Goodwin. Wow. So that season three is debuting uh, this spring. So uh, it's doing well. Um, you know, I feel like those shows are almost loss leaders, like ideological loss leaders. Like, I don't even know anymore. I assume some somebody watches all these fucking like dick wolf cop shows still. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't met anybody who does, but they still are out there but anyways um to get uh, i think this is yeah this is a central problem like the 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 priestification of doctors and medical professionals like all the cable news networks kind of have one um like in like a kind of bizarre twist you know they have like dr sanjay gupta on Mm -hmm. cnn who's like kind of their main guy but then msnbc got like a younger like more dashing like dr gupta of their own who is like even has like five degrees from like oxford princeton yale like etc and he's i notice he is always giving a kind of like tiktok doctor performance like lecturing you on like what the facts are and mm-hmm. brian williams like regularly gushes about how many degrees this guy has oh and also he's so he's such an amazing perfect uh you know uber mention that he you know, spends his time on the weekends uh, moonlighting in the Air Force uh, reserves. Wow. That's yeah. Incredibly brave. What a wow. fucking hero. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this guy's like literally the military in his spare time. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, so, but okay, so like we wrapped up in all this. I guess maybe the, the, the main focus today or like what our kind of line in is. Um, is this exercise dark winter and i think we'll talk about maybe a couple exercises this is like the first and most notable uh that happened Mm -hmm. in june 2001 there was some after um leading all the way up to uh 
the very interesting Event 201 from October 2019, uh, which was run by yeah. uh, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Johns Hopkins University, and the World Economic Forum, and uh, the, mapped yeah. out a global coronavirus pandemic, basically, just yeah. in October, like a month before uh, the Wuhan outbreak. I went to the website for uh, Event 21, or Event 201, and uh, mm. I'm gonna confuse with Agenda 21 and other, mm. uh, you know. That is interesting. I didn't, I didn't thought of that. Plan. But uh, yeah, yeah, well, I guess yeah, it's the same sum if you. Kind of, but anyway, uh, numerologically. So yeah, uh, yeah hmm, yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, I went to the hash. They still have the hashtag like in the menu bar of the website. But if you go to the hashtag event 201 now, it's like all like conspiracy theories about plan de- like pandemic. Uh, <laughs> it's all like pandemic stuff um, now. Uh, which yeah. Is, yeah. So I guess they haven't been back to that website in a while to do maintenance because I think someone uh, they're just leaving yeah, it up. Th- I guess to to pull um, it down would be more conspicuous than to just leave it there. Like what? What? This is totally innocent. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we were just we were just war gaming the exact thing that was going to happen. I think it even was like a coronavirus emerges out of China and then like spreads to Europe and the United States and yeah. um, all this well, shit. But play, anyway, uh, to play actual devil's advocate, I do think that like they. <laughs> did like it was a thing that like people knew that something like this was going to happen like for a while like i do think that in the same way that like uh yeah it's a no one it's not like 9 11 where people are like how could we ever have possibly seen this coming a failure uh, of imagination was yeah the exactly term. like no yeah Which i don't I think do that anybody buy. has said that yeah, exactly. I mean, well, many people imagined it, like, including, like, you know, Vince Gilligan or whatever, or whoever did the lone gunman pilot. Um, uh-huh. but, uh, yeah, Tom yeah, Clancy like, uh, imagined it. Exactly. Uh, the I mean, memo yeah, people from were imagining June 2001. It yeah. Fucking, um, <laughs> imagined it. Yeah, the World did. Trade Center bomber imagined it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I guess he didn't imagine the commercial airliner component, but still, like, uh, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, like, uh, so, well, I think but I don't we'll, think that we'll even return. in the official narrative, people say that this, like, you know, no one could have seen this coming. In fact, it's the opposite, where like we well, that, should that, have that, known. Yes, well, that's uh, a that's a paradox that I think we'll like we'll 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 come back to uh, kind of again and again. Is like if you guys were preparing for this so much, like why has this been? Why does this feel like such a clusterfuck? Yeah, well, if I y'all think were wargaming this over the years so extensively. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a difference between what actually was adopted by like governments and what these groups like the the who or the WHO uh, we were debating uh-huh. before recording uh, <laughs> what to properly call them. Uh, but, Wikipedia uh, says you can call it who if you want. Yeah, I was calling it a who. Uh, well, that's what it spells. You know, usually with these acronyms, if they spell something. But anyway, uh, yeah. So like, uh, I think that there there is like a disconnect actually. between what like some of these you know health lobbyists or like the world health organization will say like you know we need to do and what governments actually end up adopting um i don't know i mean i do remember that there was some like talk about like how like obama had a whole plan and trump threw it in the garbage or whatever you know like susan uh, rice was running around saying that uh yeah yeah yeah. that sounds kind of auditioning for vp i did hear that uh you know uh, I mean, I think so they, I they had something they had something to do with the Ebola, you know, outbreak in 2014. Mm-hmm. That, that's the other thing that is kind of interesting is that there were like these 
Um, if you want to be ultra paranoid, you could almost see them as like trial runs of like these different viruses that I personally like never took seriously for like two seconds uh, back, you know, like the swine flu, H1N1, mm-hmm. like the avian Yeah, those were flu, like, like jokes those almost, like we would be joking about it, you know, like yeah. people would be joking about it, you know, not like us, like not like it was our personal like favorite inside joke to mock the swine flu, but you know, it was like not, it was not this. Um, yeah. I actually found, you know, I stumbled upon like a, uh, you know, I, uh, some like really hardcore, like a uh, mark of the beast type, you know, uh, don't get a vaccine. Like it is, you know, transhumanism, uh, yes. you know, like article and, uh, in the year where it was a bibliography, I guess, for the article or like, you know, further research. And in that article, I came across, uh, this website, uh, evidence, not um, mm-hmm. and, uh, they, uh, have a mirror of a Forbes article, uh, you know, I actually really have no way of verifying their claim, uh, although I guess they do have a capture of it, um, uh, yeah, from archive.org, so yeah, this seems to be a real thing, and I, uh, and I mean, I, I think it's real, but, uh, so it's, uh, an article by Michael Fumento, so, you know, this, Obviously, like, uh, you know, it reads differently now, uh, but, uh, you know, you talked about why the event uh, 2201 people didn't uh, scrub their website, uh, but actually, apparently, Mm -hmm. Forbes did do this in October 2020. They got rid of this article. You know, it was a 10-year-old article, but I'm pretty sure, you know, uh, there's a reason why. Like, I'm sure they still host their other 10-year-old articles, but... uh, yeah, this guy, you know, and there's obviously a certain slant to this, but, uh, you know, take it as you will, because I think there's some uh, chilling things in here. Uh, this guy, Michael Fumento, um, wrote, uh, it was, uh, yeah, uh, he says, the World Health Organization has suddenly gone from crying, the sky is falling like a cackling chicken little to squealing like a stuck pig. The reason charges that the agency deliberately fomented swine flu hysteria. The world is going through a real pandemic. The description of it as fake is wrong and irresponsible, the agency claims on its website. Uh, WHO spokesman declined to specify who or what gave this description, but the primary accuser is hard to ignore. The Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, PACE, a human rights watchdog, is publicly investigating the WHO's motives in declaring a pandemic. Indeed, the chairman of his influential health committee, epidemiologist Wolfgang Vodarg, has declared Mm. that the, quote, false pandemic is one of the greatest medicine scandals of the century. Even within the agency, the director of the WHO Collaborating Center for Epidemiology in Münster, Germany, Dr. Ulrich Heil, has essentially labeled the pandemic a hoax. We are witnessing a gigantic misallocation of resources, 18 billion so far, in terms of public health, uh, he said. They're right. This wasn't merely overcautiousness or simple misjudgment. The pandemic declaration and all the klaxon ringing, well, klaxon, klaxon, mm. anyway, uh, the klaxon ringing since uh, reflects sheer dishonesty motivated not by medical concerns, but political ones. Unquestionably, swine flu has proved to be a vastly milder than ordinary seasonal flu. It kills a third to a tenth uh, the rate, according to U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Estimates. Data from other countries like France and Japan indicate it's far tamer than that. Indeed, judging by what we've seen in New Zealand and Australia, where the epidemics have ended, and by what we're seeing elsewhere in the world, we'll have considerably fewer flu deaths this season than normal. That's because swine flu muscles, aside from seasonal flu, aside seasonal flu, acting as a sort of inoculation against the far deadlier strain. Did the WHO have any indicators of this modless when it declared the pandemic in June? Absolutely. As I wrote at the time, uh, we were then fully 11 weeks. Uh, this is also 404 not found. Uh-oh. 
Uh, we were then fully 11 weeks into the outbreak, and swine flu had only killed 144 people worldwide, the same number who die of seasonal flu worldwide for every few hours. An estimated uh, uh, 250,000 to 500,000 per year by the WHO's own numbers. The mildest pandemics of the 20th century killed at least a million people. But who, how could the organization declare a pandemic when its own official definition required simultaneous epidemics worldwide with enormous numbers of deaths and illnesses? Uh, severity, that is, the number of deaths, is crucial because every year flu causes, quote, a global spread of disease. Easy. In May, mm. in what it admitted was a direct response to the outbreak of swine flu in the month before, uh, WHO promulgated a new definition matched to swine flu that simply eliminated severity as a factor. You could now have a pandemic with zero deaths. Under fire, the organization is boldly lying about the change, to which anybody with an internet connection can attest. In a mid-January virtual conference, WHO swine flu chief Keiji Fukada stated, Did WHO change its definition of pandemic? The answer is no. WHO did not change its definition. Uh, today it would be no. WHO did not change her definition. Uh, you know, no the headline of an article. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two weeks later at a PACE conference, he insisted, Having severe deaths has never been part of the WHO definition. They did it. But why? In part, it was CYA for the WHO. The agency was losing credibility over the refusal of avian flu H5N1 to go pandemic and kill as many as 150 million people worldwide as its flu czar had predicted in 2005. Around the world, nations heeded the warnings and spent vast sums developing vaccines and making other preparations. So when swine flu conveniently trotted in, the WHO essentially crossed out avian, inserted swine, and WHO Director General Margaret Chan arrogantly boasted, the world can now reap the benefits of investments over the last five years in pandemic preparedness. But there's more than bureaucratic self-interest at work here. Bizarrely enough, the WHO has also exploited its phony pandemic to push a hard-left political agenda. All right. Uh, well, you know, this is Forbes. Okay. All right. So yeah. in a September speech, WHO Director General Chan said, Ministers of Health should take advantage of the devastating impact flying flu will have on poorer nations to get out the message that changes in the functioning of the global economy are needed to distribute wealth on the basis of values like community, solidarity, equity, and social justice. She further declared mm. it should be used as a weapon against international policies and systems that govern financial markets, economies, commerce, trade, and foreign affairs. Chan's dream now lies in tatters. All the WHO has done, says Pace's Woodart, uh, Vodart, is to, I think he spelled his name differently, uh, different but anyway, as to destroy much of the credibility that they should have, which is invaluable to us if there's a future scare that might turn out to be a killer on a large scale. So, uh, you know, what I think, wow. uh, you can definitely <laughs> take issue with certain aspects of that. However, I do think that uh, the like ending note uh, rings pretty true that like the credibility was in a way undermines and that has had like dire consequences uh in yeah covid times yes uh, i was just trying to think back to was it the avian flu the h5n1 where they governments ordered like a ton of vaccines from i forget if it was you know pfizer or one of the big you know um pharmaceutical companies and then it just like petered out like it was a joke and they ended up like not needing it but then of mm -hmm. course you know the vac the the manufacturers the vaccine basically made you know hundreds of millions of dollars in profit or maybe even mm -hmm. billions in profit off of that from the you know the public funds of mm -hmm. um of various governments uh and i i do remember kind of trying to uh kind of make it 
a thing. I, I remember like the certain people in the media kind of trying to hype it up briefly as this big scary thing, and it just sort of it didn't pan out. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think uh, who who said that quote about how they want to use it as a weapon to undermine the global financial system? I mean, I that was was uh, he was he paraphrasing. I think that he was paraphrasing. He said, uh, uh, yeah, he uh, put in the whole thing about the weapon. Uh, yeah, I think that that was, um, you know, uh, yeah, he he wrote, for the, it should be used as a weapon against international, you know, he wrote the word weapon and that it should be used as a weapon against international policies and systems that govern financial markets, economies, commerce, trade, and foreign affairs. That paragraph about how, or that those two paragraphs about how it's a far-left political agenda because the WHO director said a bunch of platitudes about how, you know, obviously poorer nations suffer worse in pandemics, and so therefore mm-hmm. we should, like, you know, change uh, the global economy, uh, you know, uh, which, of course, like, is never really borne out, but it's just something that people, like, repeat because it's, uh, like, self-evidently true. Like, yeah, it would be good if, like, poor countries weren't, like, uh, you know, destitute uh, and that they were able to respond to these health crises, like, uh, you know, in a way that sure. didn't have massive human costs. But, uh, you know, I do think that the earlier idea, yeah, which is kind of what you're gesturing to, that, uh, you know, there were huge investments in preparedness for the avian flu, that didn't really, mm-hmm. you know, amount to too much. And then, you know, she said, uh, Margaret Chan said that the world can now reap the benefits of investments over the last five years in pandemic preparedness because there's now. Oh, you know. okay. But of course, I guess that, you know, we didn't really reap that when there was a real like serious pandemic uh, because if all those preparations were made, uh, we didn't really see, uh, you know, so I don't know what happened in between uh the swine flu and now where like uh you know i guess the preparedness went away you'd think like there would be still some institutions in place but i guess there weren't uh you would think so yeah um, well i guess maybe you know because they were practicing for something like that do we want to um do we want to dive into like dark winter proper and like what it was who was involved in it and what they allegedly learned from it yeah, this is interesting because a lot of people have pointed out the, like, you know, Joe Biden repeating dark winter. I feel like that's become, like, you know, uh, a curiosity for many people that he continually repeats yeah. this phrase that, you know, I guess uh-huh. uh, some people find spooky. Um, and I mean, yeah. it's like a cliche, you know, no, but also no one wants to think about having a dark winter. Uh, it's kind of uh, oddly doomer for, for Joe Biden to be like, you know, direly intoning about how we're in for a dark winter. I almost think that Joe Biden may have gotten like that idea from this. I almost feel like maybe the phrase dark winter came into his brain because he has an association with this, uh, which obviously or he had been like briefed meaning. on it. Uh, he had been briefed yeah. on it at some point on like, you know, his pandemic task force or something. I mean, this is even during the election, but still, I think that that seems about, that sounds about right because this is very influential within government and policy circles. This two thousand. Yeah, it was a huge, simulation. a huge thing. Yeah, exactly. There was a lot of talk about it. And I think he was, uh, in Congress at the time, wasn't he? Or, he, was he in the yeah, he was a senator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he was, yeah. and probably a lot of his uh, friends, I would say, because there were a lot of ex, uh, maybe current and ex senators that, or a couple of them that were 
the participants, like the players in the exercise. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe I should just read, because it is kind of a rogues gallery of interesting individuals. Yeah. Um, so so they, these were, the, the parts were played of kind of like the major uh, government officials and then, um, and let's see, uh, and the kind of like the governor of Oklahoma, which is the locus of this like, smallpox attack we'll get into like the the narrative of it in a second but the president was played by uh former senator from georgia sam nunn Mm -hmm. the national security advisor this is interesting was played by david gergen who i'm sure some people know is a proud member of bohemian grove and was famously uh confronted by alex jones years ago and <laughs> asked about uh like so i was there i was there burning the out why do you burn a cremation of care and then he said something like well i just dis- well if you were there and you're speaking about it then i disrespect you for that sir i disrespect uh, you and he's like do you sacrifice children and he's like you are a very bad man and you had no business you took an oath to not say what was going to go down in there you know like wow. it was very kind of classic weird you can still find it at youtube YouTube. Um, but David Gergen has been like, you know, he's been an advisor to like multiple. He was an advisor to uh, Nixon, Ford, Reagan and Bill Clinton. I'm surprised I, he must have been an advisor to H.W. Bush at some point. Um, but he's one of these like fixtures, very plugged in guys. So he was the national security advisor. Director of Central Intelligence was James Woolsey Jr., R. James Woolsey Jr., who was the head of the CIA uh, under Clinton from 93 to 95. Um, and uh, was actually involved in treaty negotiations with the Soviet Union for five years in the 1980s. And it's a guy that pops up a lot on, uh, like, cable news nowadays and as a kind of woke CIA veteran kind of person, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A little more. He is a Democrat um, and uh, cool. uh, went to uh, Stanford, Oxford, became a Rhodes Scholar, so early CIA, um, and then Yale Law School, and, um, you know, he, yeah, he, uh, he's a pretty plugged-in guy as well, so he was playing, uh, the, yeah, the CIA director, which he had done in real life, then, uh, Secretary of Defense was, uh, was John P. White, who served in the Clinton administration, um, Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff was, uh, John Tlelly, this one jumped out at me, uh, Secretary of State Frank Wisner, who is one of those names that pops up. Uh, uh, he's actually, this would be the son of Frank Wisner because Frank Wisner, who often uh, was an OSS guy, um, headed the Office of Policy Coordination in the late 40s and then uh, head uh, headed the Directorate of Plans under Alan Dulles. A lot of weird um, kind of a connections to like Bay of Pigs and shit like that. He suffered a mental breakdown in 1958 and retired from the agency in 1962 and committed suicide in 65. So his son, I I believe went on to be a, um, he also organized CA activities in British Guiana where Jonestown would eventually, um, uh, end up. And, uh, he was electroshocked, might've been MK'd, who knows? Um, and, yeah, so his Frank G. Wisner is his son, who is uh, oh, he's an advisor at Square Patton Boggs and is a foreign career foreign service officer in the State Department. So read read between the lines, if you will. 
Um, with that, he served on the board of um, at a subsidiary of Enron and AIG, so he's plugged in. Um, so we're getting into like Contra territory, and then just uh, let's see. On top of that, oh, the governor of Oklahoma in this exercise was played by Frank Keating of the Keating Five scandal, I believe. Um, or no, that's sorry, I'm not, that was Charles Keating. Um, they must be related. There's no way they're not related. Um, anyways, and uh, Keating uh, is, last uh, but is a common name. I don't know, but yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it is. But he was a, he was actually the former governor of um, of Hawaii or no, not Hawaii, fucking Oklahoma. And uh, last but not least, an interesting one is like somebody who played the reporter for the New York Times was none other than Judith Miller, who eventually got sent to prison for. Um, and who lied about uh, the published a bunch of fake WMD articles in the New York Times that awesome. got us into the war in Iraq. So, yeah, you know, well, this is very a heavy hitters. That's very appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause this whole thing was very much like a, uh, you know, the whole thing starts with, uh, and this is like, it's, this is interesting because the whole framework for, and this was like a huge splash. It made a huge splash. Everyone was like, oh my God, like, you know, we need to really be aware of this. But the way in which they were aware of it was kind of filtered through this 9-11 lens of bioterrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah. the whole thing begins with like this geopolitical briefing uh, where they talk about, you know, uh, there's angry rhetoric between Taiwan, the People's Republic of China. You know, it's reached an all-time high um and uh you know uh last month russian authorities with support from the fbi arrested yusuf abdulaziz known operative in al-qaeda and a close personal friend and suspected senior lieutenant of osama bin laden uh yusuf was caught in a sting operation that had been developing during the last year uh he was attempting to acquire 50 kilograms of plutonium and was also attempting to arrange the purchase of several biological pathogens that had been weaponized by the soviet union uh, and, uh, this is, you know, the mm. most, uh, uh, scary, um, where, uh, uh, talking about Iraq, uh, the Aldara vaccine plant near Baghdad closed, closed by UN inspectors after the Gulf War renewed full-scale production in 2001. The essential justification for this was the preparation of vaccines against foot and mouth disease. There are also reports that several top scientists from the former Soviet bioweapons program began working in Iraq and Iran one year ago. No. Dun, dun, dun. So yeah. a lot of this, like the focus on this is like who attacked our country. You know, it was a uh, spoiler alert. It was Iraq. Um, you know, so uh -huh. uh, like, and hmm. like all the, like a lot of the sort of stuff that happens in the course of the exercise, like civil unrest, vaccine shortages, it's all in the framework of this sort of war on terror narrative. Uh, and yeah, so it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. In light of, uh, you know, maybe how, uh, the, yeah, it, it's interesting how at one time this whole like kind of pandemic or health crisis, uh, stuff or, or predictions or anxieties were kind of channeled through terrorism. But then maybe mm -hmm. when there, you know, there's been some, fatigue around the idea of terrorism to the point that the whole like it's it's interesting because you'd think they're almost i guess trump kind of floated some of it but the official state apparatus you know like the media apparatus like didn't you know they were all very dismissive of the idea that 
this had been, you know, manufactured in a lab or something this like that. This was a even like though, a China virus, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even though, like, you know, uh, there's nothing really to establish definitively that uh, that wasn't the case. You know, you'd think under other circumstances that idea would at least be entertained, um, but it oddly mm-hmm. wasn't. There was almost an emphasis on the idea that there there was no one to blame in that way. And I wonder if there was kind of a reappraisal um, of how, you know, these things should be framed and that the uh, if the terrorism aspect maybe kind of weighs things down, because I think terrorism, as we talked about before, is something that, uh, you know, it has no real meaning. It's entirely like, you know, it's just something that is uh it, it entirely is like its its definition is just in its like application um and uh yeah yeah I it's it's if, hard to it's yeah. hard to separate from like the relationship between like the sort of the target of the terrorism and the the terrorists themselves like you know one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist yeah, like exactly. it's an extremely malleable term and and a charged one because like that usually in it's in most cases uh spreading deliberate terror among a civilian population is seen as a as a bad thing as a, as a not good thing so anybody who's a terrorist is ipso facto bad and a threat yes. but i wonder yeah i wonder that about kind of the exhaustion of terrorism as a motivating narrative for like the u.s empire uh mm-hmm. coming out to the end of the 2010s where it did have quite a second hurrah uh, to some extent but i don't know it's 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 hard to say you know to what extent it was as successful as like the 9-11 terror spectacle that got all these wars going i mean you had like the rise of isis and which was sort of um laundered back into renewed calls to intervene militarily in syria which did happen to some extent it, we did you know move in we did start sending like special forces uh operators and a lot of drones and stuff into eastern syria but we still weren't able to kind of we weren't able to get like a saddam hussein result out of syria that i think we wanted of toppling the Baathist government and blah, blah, blah. And it seems like, you know, these like lone wolf terror, these weird lone wolf terror attacks that happened in Europe and the United States and in other places. Um, well, I still do see reports that there, the, the, uh, the sort of the terror ops tempo is quite high in Africa and a lot of countries where Al Shabaab, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. another, you know, yeah. nebulous org is and, just yeah, like Trump doing the dove, sp- like, like escalated the drone war in Somalia like you know twofold at least like you know by yeah yeah and 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 uh, yet he uh he you know he announced that he's like pulling 2700 troops out of Somalia like right before he leaves office which like I'm gonna resist the urge to go like yeah base Trump like uh, sticking it to the Pentagon because they're probably just mm-hmm. reallocating those troops somewhere else but no, it is interesting that, that so it's much. like it's so stupid yeah like uh yeah but um yeah, uh, I mean, but I don't it, know. I, like, I wonder what if yeah. I wonder yeah. if we're like pivoting to a new epoch where the the terror threat has to be in some sense incredibly vague, widespread, and hard to pin down, and not attributable to like any one human actor or group of actors, like yeah. which is basically kind of the paradigm of the coronavirus. 
is mm-hmm. you that like they don't want you to blame it on China. Uh, and I and I yeah. don't I'm not personally like I wouldn't rule it out, but but also yeah, I'm, I wouldn't I would resist out, the nope, urge to jump to. Yeah, I wouldn't say that we should certainly jump that conclusion, but it is intriguing that like, you know, I really do think that in a different political climate, really, I think that if we had like a Democratic president, then, uh, you know, and Trump weren't known in a way for like stoking, uh, you know, political tensions with other countries. Uh, and I think that mm-hmm. due to the nature of like our inter- interdependency with China in various ways, like, you know, I think the World Health Organization definitely played a role in trying to sort of mitigate any, uh, you know, intimation in that direction. But I feel like mm-hmm. under different political circumstances, uh, that would have been given uh, more consideration. And you know what, really, maybe it was given more consideration, like within the Trump administration, and in the same way, maybe it would have been given more consideration. I don't, I feel like I don't necessarily think a Democratic administration would have not considered it in the same way. I mean, maybe they would have considered it even more and it would have been you know given more of a hearing in in the media perhaps uh because i you know mm-hmm. I think well that, yeah if like, it was like the yeah. sensible clinton administration doing it yeah. then i i could see them because you know like because it is they don't, a very they're complex not relationship you know they exactly yeah. they understand like you know when like we trust them like what you know they know when it's necessary to consider, you know, these, these problems like that. So so I I think that's something to watch out for. Uh, That's Um, something to watch out for going forward. Just, just as to think like, Oh, well, you know, Biden will tamp down tensions against China. Um, Well, he might just pursue an antagonistic course with China in a more sophisticated way. Um, and who knows? Or maybe they, they blackmailed him with, like, Hunter Biden, like, dick photos. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, <but laughs> like, that's quite possible, too, because I, I don't think these people... These, uh, the Bidens seem particularly uh, the sloppy Biden about... The dick photos helped him, though. Uh, they they kind of did. By. They did. Yeah. Um, but and, I did find uh, this... Uh, yeah. I did find this article from uh, summer 2002 uh, that was published in Orbis, uh, called the mm-hmm. dark winter of biological terrorism, which is kind of uh, about the exercise by this dude okay. Peter J. Roman, who I guess was a uh, a, f- a homeland security uh, fellow um, at uh, some. Uh, he is a professor at du- uh, Duquesne University. Um, Duquesne, I think it's Duquesne, uh, or I oh, think Duquesne. it's Duquesne. Yeah, that how it's pronounced. Those uh, French word, those French words again. Once again, yeah. wow, it's a French word too. Yeah, uh, yeah. He was also a senior fellow at the Answer Institute for Homeland Security, um, and he wrote this uh, interesting article, uh, kind of reflecting on the exercise and on the nature of uh, bioterrorism in general. Like, uh, you know, in two thousand two. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and I think a lot of things uh, that he said uh, also have uh, these uh, sort of uh, provocative um residences um he uh wrote for instance successfully deterring terrorists is difficult for a number of reasons terrorists often strike in a manner uh or at times when our targets are unaware and thus uh unable to issue a deterrent threat um some terrorists will conceal their identities in order to avoid retaliation or other punishment for their actions a few terrorists may be even undeterrable by virtue of their objectives or worldviews these factors lead some to conclude that deterrence is a poor option to combat biological terrorism. As Christopher Chiba puts it, an actor who cannot be identified cannot be threatened. 
Certainly, from our Western perspective, the actions of suicidal terrorists, such as those who perpetrated the September 11th attacks, are so abhorrent and irrational that they are unfathomable. How on earth could we deter those who contemplate, much less execute, such acts? Um, we might ask similar questions about the weaponization of the worst biological agents, such as smallpox or the Marburg virus. So this, to me, is like very similar to what you're saying, where, yeah, like that is all true, not only of, uh, you know, he's saying that of people who would use a disease for uh, terroristic purposes, but of course it's also true of a disease. Um, he also, uh, that it, it's just like, write, it's, it's like an ax murder cult. It doesn't care. It's yeah, like a terminator. Exactly. It it's doesn't, like you can't reason cult. with it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so he also wrote, uh, some things about the vaccine and the exercise. Uh, this was, you know, it wasn't le- unlike event 201, which was straight up coronavirus. This was like a smallpox thing, which was for a while kind of the go-to, uh, bioweapon that everyone sort of feared might be unleashed mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. uh you know and it's a very scary one it's like disfiguring you know etc so um high mortality yeah. rate right like yeah, yeah pretty yeah, high mortality rate yeah it's yeah, a, like, yeah, like super deadly virus like, and yeah like leagues uh, above coronavirus mm-hmm. yeah no if it were yeah, yeah if smallpox had gotten out it would be yeah uh extremely brutal but anyway so um this is like called uh, false expectations of uh disease utility after initial mm-hmm. smallpox outbreaks in three states the dark winter participants deliberations immediately focus on the nation's stockpile of smallpox vaccine for the participants the vaccines seemed to offer the best chance to solve the spread of the disease at the earliest stages they were told that the smallpox vaccine stockpile contained 50 million doses with only about 12 million usable doses therefore vaccine management became critical very early in the crisis the participants decided to release several million doses of the vaccine to the infected areas while reserving 2.5 million doses for the military, first responders, and government leaders. The remaining vaccine was held in the stockpile. Unfortunately, the vaccine had little visible effect on the spread of the smallpox in dark winter. Cases rose from several dozen in three states at the end of the first day to 2,000 cases in 15 states by the beginning of the sixth day. With the smallpox vaccine supply exhausted by the 14th day, the disease had grown to 16,000 cases in 25 states and spread to 15 other countries. Um, yes, and he uh, continued to kind of talk about uh, how this uh, sort of failed. He said, Faced with a smallpox outbreak of unknown proportions and a limited vaccine stockpile, the dark winter participants took great pains to fashion a vaccine policy that ensured the minimal amount of misuse and misdirection. Vaccine use in dark winter called for a, quote, ring strategy once a case was identified to inoculate those who had contact with an infected person. Since vaccine was the participant's only resource, it needed to be conserved for those most at risk. Consequently, they treated the vaccine more like an antidote than a vaccine. This had three important consequences. Mm. First, the longer the vaccine was held in reserve, the less valuable it became for slowing the disease. The geometric generation of new cases meant that the virus expanded more rapidly than the vaccination program could account for. By the exercise's midpoint, participants realized that the super number of new cases would soon overwhelm the remaining vaccine supply. Secondly, the spread of the disease made any residual vaccine more valuable on black markets and susceptible to de- theft and diversion. Thus, the vaccine's economic value rose in the exercise precisely as its prophylactic value declined. This further complicated the participants' ability to manage the vaccine stockpile, which undermined public support for the government. 
Lastly, treating the vaccine like an antidote enabled participants to avoid consideration of other measures such as isolation, quarantine, or restrictions on public activity. These were politically undesirable for participants early in the crisis when the number of cases was small, precisely when such measures would have had the greatest impact on the disease. By the time dark winter participants approved quarantining the infected, the smallpox virus had reached epidemic proportions. Uh, So, yes, you can definitely see how a lot of that applies to what's unfolded here, although obviously the aspects of, uh, you know, smallpox are different from uh covid and yeah it's like uh yeah well that is an interesting um, inverse correlation that the the monet like the the market value of the vaccine rises as its effectiveness as it's kind yeah. of overall mm-hmm. not medical effectiveness but like its ability to stop the pandemic decreases it becomes yes. more valuable Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, okay. people so saw a, it as being yeah an antidote, which a is something that an antidote instead of a uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it isn't antidote. Well, okay. So what? It's not. So, yeah, like, yeah. It's um, not an antidote. It's a vaccine, um, which like you know can uh, help you develop like antibodies or you yes. know an ability to fight the infection. But it doesn't, you know, it certainly doesn't cure COVID when you have it. And uh, so treating it in that way is definitely wrong. And uh, I see. Yeah, it's not like an anti-venom serum or something that like, yeah, exactly. And it'll reverse it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It still has to. You have to not catch it in the first place or you have to get the vaccine before you catch it, basically, or else you're you're screwed. Yeah, uh, probably the most, yeah, exactly. You're screwed if you don't, like, you know, it's preventative. You can't get a vaccine after the fact uh, because the whole yeah. thing is based on inoculation. Although I guess, like, these new MRA vaccine, M- mRNA vaccines are all about, like, uh, programming your cells to create the mm-hmm. virus themselves rather than introducing, uh, you know, like, uh, plasmids or whatever. I'm, like, using the completely wrong word, I'm sure, but... Uh, yeah, um, but the most uh, the most interesting thing perhaps this guy wrote, or the most interesting section of this, this paper, is called uh, False Expectations of Degree of Control. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he writes, The dark winter exercise, the September 11th attacks, and the anthrax attacks have confirmed the difference between homeland security and traditional approaches to national security with respect to political leaders' ability to direct resources and influence outcomes. The federal government cannot possess a degree of control over homeland security that it commands over national security. This frustrates the executive branch officials and engenders criticism from an expectant public. Governmental power in the United States is constrained in many ways, most notably through the federal structure, the separate branches that share powers, and limitations on regulating the private sphere, especially the marketplace. However, these limitations have traditionally had much less impact in the national security realm. When drafting the Constitution, the Founding Fathers saw the need to concentrate national defense powers in the federal government. This seemed entirely logical and appropriate for the United States as its principal national security threats were external rather than internal. Further, the values of military organizations, hierarchy, obedience, orders, etc., that enable political leaders to exercise civilian control conflict with the values of a liberal society. This anomalous place of national security within the American state and society regularly produced irritants, fears of professional military separate from the rest of a liberal society, or worries about inadequate democratic checks over national security organizations have cropped up routinely in American history. 
Still, the concentration of national security power in the federal government accelerated as a result of the United States' experience in World War II and the Cold War. Consequently, the American public and political leaders have looked to a powerful president in control of all the instruments of government during national security crises. Most presidents have readily obliged and taken up the mantle of action. Homeland security changes how the American state and its leaders protect society. As in any liberal democratic society, many of the institutions essential for the effective functioning of society reside outside of the federal government, or perhaps any governmental entity. Americans depend on state and local governments, public authorities, and the private sector to provide public health, finance, telecommunications, energy, public works, and countless other goods and services. Terrorists seeking to shock and disrupt American society will find lucrative targets within each level of government and in the private sector. Consider how the September 11th attacks stretch across entities including the federal government, the Pentagon, the Federal Aviation Administration, state and local governments, city governments in Washington, D.C. and New York City, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and the Massachusetts Port Authority, and countless private sector companies, e.g. United Airlines, American Airlines, Argon Bright Security, and the tenants of the World Trade Center. The terrorists successfully exploited the gaps between these different entities to generate devastating effects. The Dark Winter Exercise and the Anthrax Attacks... Uh, have revealed some impediments to federal leadership during biological terrorist strikes. The usual problems of access to accurate information and crisis management are exacerbated in cases of biological terrorism, where routine, familiar communications channels probably do not exist between policymakers and those who hold critical information, particularly the public health sector. Critical information may be transmitted either erratically or not at all. This is, of course, accentuated by the time needed to detect and diagnose cases of biological terrorism. These information problems undermine the ability of policymakers to assess the situation, formulate a prompt response, and convey their message to the public. Dark winter participants sought more information on the smallpox outbreaks early in the exercise, only to find that it wasn't available. One participant kept pleading, just give me the facts, but the experts had no ready answers. Similar problems are apparent in the Bush administration's reaction to the anthrax attacks, particularly with respect to the postal system and issues of cross-contamination. Presidents and other federal officials possess little, if any, authority to direct many of those on the front lines of biological terrorism and other homeland security crises. The disparity between federal efforts to produce activity and the responsiveness of state, local, and private sector officials is clear in both Dark Winter and the anthrax attacks. Dark Winter participants found that governors fought to maintain control over the National Guard. In the exercise scenario, the governor of Texas used the state police and the Texas National Guard to enforce his, not the president's, suspension of any transportation between his state and Oklahoma, where the smallpox outbreaks began. Hmm. Fortunately, one does not find problems in this order of magnitude in the current anthrax crisis, although they are still present. California Governor Gray Davis's public announcement of potential threats against West Coast bridges rankles some federal officials. As one told Newsweek, once you tell the locals, these guys can't stop running to cameras. Similarly, some postal union officials have sought and received judicial remedy to protect their members from perceived workplace dangers. One could easily imagine that such conflicts would be magnified as homeland security threats and biological terrorism increased. Homeland security expands the range of institutions involved far beyond the traditional national security establishment. Suddenly, postal workers, healthcare professionals, local law enforcement, and countless others find themselves on the front lines of a new type of war. Unlike those in the national security bureaucracy, they neither signed up for nor are legally obligated to fight this war. Whether or how they choose to do so will determine America's effectiveness in homeland security. Thus, homeland security requires an unprecedented integration of effort across all levels of government and with the private sector to deter, prevent, and respond to terrorist attacks. While the president must lead this effort, he cannot rely on his authority to command, but must persuade many actors to cooperate towards the common objective of homeland security. 
so yes, uh, this is yeah. What I think, if, I think that this speaks a lot to what we're seeing play out now, where there's this false expectation of control uh, that would map up with the uh, you know a more conventional type of threat that I guess you know this guy would associate with a national security problem, uh, which is different yeah. from I guess the new paradigm that he's I guess among other people at this point, at the turn of the, you know, 21st century after 9-11, trying to establish mm-hmm. the new paradigm of homeland security, um, which is much more integrated and requires basically the enlistment of, like, postal workers, healthcare professionals, you know, et cetera, uh, Media and people. countless others, it, a.k.a. all of us, yeah. on the front lines yeah. of this new war. Uh, yeah. You know, the new homeland security paradigm is different where you know, there, there's not enough control as you would expect. Uh, so Mm -hmm. one uh, solution, which I guess is the one that he was uh, saying is that the president, you know, can't rely on his authority command. He must persuade. Um, Uh but you know, there's obviously been some failure to persuade in many respects. Um, uh, so one wonders what will happen. I mean, yeah, well, that's an, that's an interesting, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing to throw into the mix, uh, and then think about it in light of Trump being the president when the Corona event basically happened, because we, you, I think if it had been, even if it had been like a boring milquetoast Republican, or if it had been Hillary Clinton, I mean, she probably would have gotten a lot of shit from right-wing folks uh, who thought yeah. she was doing some New World Order bullshit. It would have been but, the opposite uh, situation where, like, you know, yeah, uh, yeah um, like, believing Like, this persuasion was... was yeah. was almost in like this part of uh his recommendations kind of you know really couldn't be utilized in the trump era because all of these official organizations uh, i mean in particular the media were kind of existentially dead set on kind of like refusing his influence you know basically standing up to him and basically mm-hmm. you know uh criticizing him uh in almost any kind of instance that would come about and uh his power of persuading them you know the cnn's of yeah the world he certainly or, he had no ability to persuade all the people that he named except for possibly local law enforcement those were the yeah. only people who he had yeah, to be exactly with. not postal workers yes. not healthcare professionals uh and certainly not the media yeah like he you know was probably the most like very very loathed by the media uh as a president mm-hmm. so like they like, you know, anything that he was associated with, they were liable to take issue with in some way. Uh, yeah. Remember he had to... He had to owed him any favors. Uh, for sure. Remember how they, they stopped, like, having him come out and do daily press conferences after a while because they were so combative. And then, like... Mm-hmm. like so, and then he would say certain things that would just freak people out, like the yeah. bleach thing, which, like... It's like, whatever. Okay, yeah, he said something stupid. Like, calm down. Like... Uh, I don't know. Like, you know, people were going on for months about how he told, you know, his supporters to inject themselves with bleach. Like, wow, like, get this fascist out. You know, <laughs> like, just yeah. freaking out. And uh, But, you know, it, like, it was not an ideal situation to have somebody uh, who yeah. was uh, getting everybody on the, president, on the same yeah. page. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so we, we're almost... Uh, people should inject themselves with bleach, but... Uh, no, yeah, it's not. Uh, or, yeah. or, you know, um, do but, some kind of bleach right. thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, basically... Uh, I mean, so it, we were set up for a particularly vulnerable uh, window of time where we wouldn't have this like smooth technocratic synergy where I think if like Obama had been president when this happened or 
Clinton, I think you could have kind of mismanaged just as much stuff in, in an actual way in terms of logistics and resources and things like that. But the perception of it, the psycho, the mass psychological perception of it would have been different with a large segment of the population. Yeah, absolutely. It would have been different. Um, definitely the optics of having Trump in power and like all the main symbols of COVID. I mean, the big one is the masks. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, the aversion, like, yeah, I mean, it's become a political wedge issue where, like, mm-hmm. there is an aversion to, like, the observance of, and, like, you know, it's, uh, and people who have, like, kind of a refractive sensibility around, uh, these things in general, like, you know, when, uh, people are being kind of patronizing or disciplinarian and trying to make you do something that's miserable. Like anyone who mm-hmm. has like a kind of understandingly kind of a refractionary response to that, uh, you know, like, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's that aspect as well, but especially among people who have an investment in Trump or, you know, a, which is often kind of goes hand in hand with like, a a hatred of like legacy media um yeah you and, know, and for various a, a reasons well credentialed uh, elites the uh, yeah mm-hmm. all the dr guptas you know just right. uh telling them what to do the tiktok doctors uh all those people yes. and it actually um, it, it reminds me it it intersects with something that we brought up near the end of the grateful dead episode which i think is like an interesting longer term trend that I think is like relevant to all of this, which is like sort of the decades long creation of the atomized neoliberal subject colliding with this uh, unique crisis where certain types of collectivist action, for lack of a better term, are required to effectively deal with it and the friction between those two things and how in a weird way, I think there's like uh, two maybe like two lines. Of course, there's the obvious like my body, my mask, like fuck you. I'm not wearing the face diaper. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah. Like don't tread on me. You know, um, you could imagine there's probably some, you know, aging deadheads out there that, you know, are like whatever, man, you know, um, though maybe they're all like, yeah, they're I've all COVID so built. I don't know. That like, uh, you know, job of the hut gave me an aura of like protection again, like, you know, all pathogens simply pass through, my body because i've ascended uh in my studies with the claxtons uh exactly yeah. it's it something um, like that yeah um or on the other hand the kind of like um there's a kind of like inverse of that which is like if you if i perceive you to be like a somebody who's not taking covid seriously enough then you are like a threat to me and like mm-hmm. my family and to society in general. And so I'm going yeah. to scold you. I'm going to like try to shame people that like aren't doing the right thing. You see a lot of trends with that kind of on the, the liberal trust mm-hmm. science side right now that, and, but I think that in a weird way, it's like, it's easy to say, Oh, this is like, you know, Maoist collectivism, like rising up with like these rad lib kind of people. But I don't think it's quite that. I don't think that, in a weird way, it's almost like a sort of pseudo collectivist impulse that still rises from like a very neoliberal mentality of like, Mm -hmm. you can't infringe on my, like my safe virus free space. And like, and I don't know. I mean, I think there's definitely, you know, situations where you could kind of 
I think it maybe would be a valid, you know, social faux pas to like walk into a tightly enclosed, you know, uh, kind of place with like poor airflow and like not wear a mask and like refuse to like put one on you know what i mean like like there's kind of like a you know we don't know enough about the particulars of this virus still to kind of like really say so like maybe err on the side of you know not like i i wouldn't call everybody who you know objects to like that type of individual doing a thing like that uh you know a, a crazy karen or an asshole but like there's definitely a vibe of um people that you know, I see around L.A. right now, like something that confuses me, which is people walking around or like walking their dogs or even jogging like on empty streets with nobody around and they're wearing masks. And it's like mm-hmm. that. I don't even think like the health experts have said that, like, you need to wear a mask when you're like jogging by yourself with nobody around you. Like, as far as we know, like there's no evidence that the virus floats around outdoors. And, like, yeah. you can catch it by walking around in open air. So, like, why are people doing it? And then that's got to be either, like, a psychological thing. They're, they're scared enough by what they're seeing on, like, the media uh, that they feel like they have to do that. Or it's kind of like this ritual thing. It's like a form of identification. Like, I'm doing my part. I'm wearing my yeah. mask. And, like, or it's a fear of being judged for not wearing the mask. Like, you don't want to have your neighbor give you the stink eye. And I've heard stories from people that are, like, that go around jogging and stuff. And they'll see kind of, you know, they'll pass people on their route who kind of get like mean mug them for not wearing a mask when they're running by themselves. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, what's that all about? You know, and I think that I think that and maybe that comes to the kind of um, maybe one of the grand uh, supposed objectives of like all of the Silicon Valley stuff that is like taking over the economy now is it's kind of like um, promoting a sort of like pseudo collectivism that has all of like it, you know just the way we talked about like you know uh is studying marx or maoism very closely to see like how can we instrumentalize these practices of social organization uh to build our own organizations that can be effective but also get rid of all that like revolutionary class struggle content and like bury all of that in a similar way it's like let's all become collectivized and you know rise up to the struggle and uh and you know um let's have propaganda on TV telling us like all the right thing to do. Let's all wear our mask and like, let's judge and shame and like cancel people who like aren't following this, um, you know, this sort of mass movement to like save the world or, but it's like, it's not a real, it's still kind of based a lot on, I think maybe a kind of like individual, like a neoliberal individualism a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not going to make us like, like we're still going to have a like are we going to have a collectivized pod society where 10 corporations run everything and surveil us every second of our lives and it's like we live in public but like we're going to be tricked into thinking we the masses are going to be tricked into thinking that like you know everything's being shared that we live in like a sharing economy that term has even mm-hmm. popped up the last like 10 years yeah, of course. like the sharing yeah. economy you know um mm-hmm. instead of an ownership economy so basically like you won't own anything uh no wealth is really going to be just dis- redistributed in a meaningful way it's still all going up to like the, the global super class at the top but you're gonna feel like you're a part of like uh yeah almost in this like pseudo uh, socialist or communalist kind of way that you're like, you know, connected in this, uh, um, I don't know. It just, it, it, it kind of, um, it, it, 
it gives me the willies a little bit to see kind of it happening. And I think that, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I people <laughs> like, uh, well, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. Like I personally, like, I mean, I don't mind the masks, uh, like, uh, on principle. I mean, I guess I don't like the difficulty of breathing in them, but, uh, you know, I don't like, uh, mind, like, uh, the phenomenon of people wearing them, I guess, like, uh, you know, maybe it's because of my, like, general aversion to eye contact and things like that, that, like, uh, you know, I don't have, like, you know, reading faces, maybe, uh, I don't mind so much as others, but, um, you know, like, uh, but, you know, it also does make me think of how, like, uh, you know, for instance, like, the idea of a veiled woman, you know, is something that to some, many people is just, like, inherently, like, evil and, like, scary and, like, wrong, you know, like, if you mm -hmm. see someone in, like, the cab, like, that is just, like, flat out, like, you know, you just show a picture of that and associate it with something, and then, like, there, like, thereby that thing is, like, bad by association because that yeah. is self-evidently bad, you know what I mean? So it's the same yeah, thing, yeah. like, you know, where I think that people have, like, uh, the same thing with masks, where, like, oh, well, you know, there's just something about this that is just feels self-evidently like on some sort of like uh cultural like level wrong or something like that and i think that that is it's interesting like to bring up like malism or whatever or, like a capitalized sort of like technocratic form of malism because i think that even though you know whatever you want to say about whether china's like numbers are real or not i do find it pretty easy to believe that they've done a better job of dealing with this than the united states has and I think that yeah. part of the reason for that is, like, you know, both of us having been to China, I think that, like, mm -hmm. without, you know, uh, like, making any broad generalizations or, you know, propounding any kind of stereotypes, I think that we can say that China is uh, good at marshalling, like, uh, its population, like, you know, the Chinese government is, is good at uh, marshalling its population to take collective action and to unite yeah. around, like, certain goals and programs, uh, you know, in a way sure. that our uh, institutions aren't necessarily. Uh, and yeah, no, that, absolutely. And I mean, it's also a culture where like masking or like, you know, for health reasons is relatively normal, like, uh, yes. you know, prior to this. Uh, so mm -hmm. like that also, I think, uh, might be, might be a factor. Um, and yeah, I think that that, you know, the whole, like the, yeah, the aspect of, yeah, there's uh, a problem where it just, yeah, it runs into a level where you cannot force people to do certain things. And, like, uh, yeah, I was reading this article that I mentioned to you before we started recording that was sort of a comparison between the uh, smallpox outbreak in Yugoslavia in uh, 1972 yeah. with the sort of fictional smallpox outbreak in Dark Winter. And, uh, that also, that smallpox outbreak had certain parallels to what we're experiencing now, uh, where, you know, it was something that originated among, like, a small, uh, population of Muslims, of, uh, Kosovo Albanians, um, mm -hmm. that actually started with a pilgrim, you know, I guess the Karbala, and, uh, you know, he, uh, and sort of the, uh, you know, he had come back to the community and it started to spread in their initial uh, attempt was trying to use a strategy that was kind of uh, used in Dark Winter, which was ring vaccination, where you vaccinate mm -hmm. people, you know, around, uh, you know, people who are, are confirmed. You know, you do a contact tracing, and then yes. you vaccinate the people who are, you know, in contact with that person. 
Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the problem was that a lot of those, uh, you know, people in that community uh, were distrustful of the government uh, due to, like, longstanding tensions, like, between uh, majoritarian forces and, uh, you know, uh, the Muslim uh, community of Albanians in Kosovo uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, have come to a head at various times in history. Um, and uh, so, like, uh, like, they wouldn't disclose their associations. There was talk that, like, you know, this was a government plot to exterminate mm-hmm. the Albanian people, you know, which was something that, again, like, much like, uh, you know, uh, now where people, like, you know, maybe they have, like, uh, c- certain people might have a legitimate reason to feel suspicious of vaccines due to like the way that they've been, uh, used against like, uh, you know, different communities, especially like abroad, um, in in various ways. Like, so there's Mm -hmm. like legitimate reasons for certain people's suspicion, especially in this case, uh, you can't really fault them for the concerns that they had, which is that this was some kind of, uh, plot uh, against them and that they would induce abortions or something. These vaccines are cause sterility, um, and, uh, so eventually the government kind of threw up its hands and what they had to do was just, uh, you know, go in and surround entire villages and just vaccinate them. Um, and, you know, they forcibly isolated suspected cases, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and they makeshift hospitals and camps. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, like, uh, then once it spread to Belgrave, they were like, uh, you know, we're gonna stockpile the vaccine here. But that's, like, what it came to, and, of course, it's a very different social situation, like, in the United States. However, like, the same aspects are present, whether it's just trust of the government, like, among yeah. certain sectors of the population for various reasons, both legitimate and illegitimate, and uh, the mechanisms of persuasion, like, are probably not going to be effective, and when those don't sure. work, one wonders, like, what the solution is going to be. Um, well, I like, mean, I, it is worth noting that just like in the case, the, the, the way you mentioned with China, and you could also probably throw Cuba and Vietnam into this mix in terms of, like, their relatively, like, responsible and contained handling of the coronavirus, that, you know, this is another case in Yugoslavia uh, where you had a communist country even with all the sort of socio-ethnic tensions that uh, that basically dogged the rollout of, like, responding to this thing, they were able to basically squash it with, I think, uh, maybe, like, 130 people died, something along those lines. And mm-hmm. they were able to basically eradicate it in a kind of yes. short amount of time. They were. Um, and, but they had to use extremely authoritarian i mean ultimately like you could say like you know it's a you have to do like a um a uh you know cost benefit analysis in a way like uh they did have to use pretty like measures that would be considered pretty authoritarian in order to do it they did do it which is good because like you know yeah well i mean they didn't kill anybody they didn't they didn't throw anybody in a gulag i mean it wasn't really Um, that that I'm going to stand up for my socialist Yugoslavia a little bit here and say like, but I mean, I, you could see, but if something like that happened in the United States, you cannot imagine like what the response would be like, you know, like, well, exactly, uh, exactly, say, like exactly. the idea of like, you, like, you know, forced vaccination, 
like uh you know establishing oh, for makeshift sure. uh, hospitals, like if you like were camps, to say you know if like, you were to yeah, take a similar yeah be, if you're gonna take a similar group yeah. like the uh like the chabad lubavitchers in new york like exactly. okay we're gonna yeah. move all you guys to a camp because you refuse mm-hmm. to get vaccinated we're gonna surround yeah, that would not... you know like we're gonna surround like this area of like bedsty or whatever and like, to be know, fair, though, in, gonna, new, in yeah. new Rochelle early on in COVID, they did send in the National Guard. It looked like one of those 90s pandemic movies. They sent in the National Guard to New Rochelle, where a lot of Shabbat Lubavitchers uh, and Hasidic Jews live, where it was one of the earliest outbreaks. And I mean, I don't think that, you know, they didn't like, you know, march anybody down the streets with guns or anything. But there were like Humvees and tanks and kind of it was a real it was weird. It was kind of a weird show of like force. I don't even know why the National Guard felt like they had to go there. But of course, there was a lot of controversy about shutting down the synagogues and how they didn't mm-hmm. want to do that. And they yeah. don't feel like the like vaccines are not kosher and mm-hmm. they kind of don't want to have anything uh, to do with any of that stuff. So then where does the line get drawn where now we have to? And I think that's that's kind of the scary road maybe that, that we are heading down this dark winter of people starting to entertain the idea when especially if, like we've said, the vaccine isn't the one knockout punch that everyone hoped it would be. Like, is there going to be a move in the kind of popular public discourse about well like maybe we need to you know there have been ideas floated like maybe we should tie the next stimulus check to proof that you got the vaccine mm-hmm. you know john yeah. delaney uh erstwhile presidential candidate said that on tv a little while ago and while mm-hmm. i mean i i don't think that's like that's actively on the table right now i think the they'll probably pass a reduced check or whatever you know without forcing you to get vaxxed you could easily see bill gates i think has talked about you know uh vaccine passport apps that you know you could have on your phone and stuff that and so you could start to see i mean in a way it's like maybe less like you know if we're going to entertain the the sort of the mark of the beast thing you know perhaps it's less like the vaccine itself but it's going to be like this vaccine passport thing feels a little mark of the beasty and like that you're going to have to I don't know, even in a psychological level, it's like you're going to have to prove that you injected yourself with something to be a full member of full participant in IRL society. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, you're going to have to do yeah, this. It's a, and, it's a viscerally troubling notion. I mean, I like uh, for some of the Mark of the Beast stuff, I feel like it's getting like a little bit like again it's like kind of facile and there's like many aspects of i think that it's part like part of it like as you said like i think that part of it is the invasiveness of like injections and Mm -hmm. that combined with the element of surveillance is maybe what people react to so strongly in terms of like the surveillance and like the slow slide into a kind of uh you know uh bestian uh paradigm i feel like that doesn't necessarily require an aspect of vax like vaccination like per se you're right you're um, right and like the biopolitical control over people is like advancing no matter what however like you know it's uh yeah like uh this is definitely like part of that and like you know it like yeah it's gonna be again these are the problems they encounter when they do the dark winter exercise you know, they encountered issues of like, okay, well, do we do this? Or like, you know, uh, are we going to have to, are we going to respect people's civil liberties, you know, or are we going to do everything that we can to stop, to stop the spread, you know, to flatten the curve? Um, and, yeah. uh, yeah. And I think that it is going to be because the, like the whole persuasion 
technique is not going to work. Like, it's not going to work. Like, you know, I think that your average person, like, you know, just think, like, you know, even if there's nothing to this, like, even if there's no reason to really be afraid of the vaccine, like, I, I feel like, honestly, even I would almost be liable to just, like, you know... Cause I don't, I don't really usually even get flu shots to be honest with you. Like partially, I don't either. Like, you know, but I feel like a lot of people might feel like, okay, well, other people will get it. So like, uh, I don't need to worry about it. Like, you know, so I think, and I think that that might happen. Like, I don't think that like, and the vaccine, you know, it's not an antidote and we've kind of passed the point where I think these vaccines are going to, you know, do like, are they going to make this end, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, so like people are going to be dissatisfied Maybe, like, at first, like, it could be people are like, you know, uh, well, people aren't taking the vaccine enough. We have to for- but I don't think that even if, even if there's a vaccine passport, that, like, this will necessarily stop. Um, you know, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I so don't know. I, I don't like, know. Um, yeah, we, uh, we'll have to see because, yeah, I really don't know what, what, what will happen to the other end of the dark winter. Like, when will this be over it'd go back like, to normal uh, i don't unless yeah. we go to a new normal um and you know what um we're we're at like an hour 30 right now so maybe it's a good time mm. to to pause and take a break and then maybe we can talk a little bit about like the great reset and maybe um yeah you can mention the clade x admin uh uh the clade x simulation from 2018 oh an event 201 and like then then the great reset and like maybe do, are there some clues in this that tell us like what kind of world they're trying to conjure? Who will be the first to tell me of a past adventure? Why don't you tell them about the time we faced Doom? All right. Well, as I remember, Doom had threatened the world leaders with destruction of every major city on Earth. Headquarters. Good evening. mentioning the sequels to dark winter there were at least two of them two major ones uh that we also discovered in researching this um the first of which was atlantic storm from january 2005 um Mm -hmm. very similar also involved john hopkins university and was uh, sponsored by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Uh, German Marshall Fund is, like, very sus and, like, uh, kind of, you know, um, National Endowment for Democracy type, like, CIA, NGO. But anyways, um, so the the main difference with this one was it was still a terrorist smallpox attack, uh, but instead of hitting one or two parts of the United States, like in dark winter, it hit multiple international cities. It hit Istanbul, Rotterdam, Warsaw, Frankfurt, New York City, and Los Angeles. And uh, I guess, you know, basically the virus was exported to uh, various other countries within hours, and uh, it got pretty bad. And I guess the 
<clears throat> the overall purpose was to test the international cooperation element to reacting to a bioterror attack. Um, and uh, naturally, the scenario assumed that the viral ingredients were obtained from a bioweapons facility in Russia. So, um, yeah, one, once again, there, it's interesting in light of the criticisms that you outlined of needing to frame this in like a homeland security like terrorism context how Mm -hmm. they uh, all three of these main exercises uh the later one was clade x from 2018 they all basically involve a like deliberately spread sometimes deliver even like specially manufactured lethal you know pandemic virus basically to unleash or bacteria or whatever um and uh, it's not until event 201 from late last year that, I mean, there may have been other exercises uh, that we haven't covered, but in terms of like very big notable ones, that seemed to be the first one that uh, that mirrored kind of what we've gone through in 2020, which is like a quote unquote, the assumption of an accidental release of a virulent coronavirus as opposed to a deliberate attack by a nation state or by some terrorists or things like that mm-hmm. yeah um, and yeah hmm. uh, um i don't know maybe right. and that's I, I, like that was hosted by the bill and melinda gates foundation which is like a little bit different uh yes that, still like involving the, johns hopkins but uh right yeah and the and the world economic forum which previously had not gotten into this game so mm-hmm. it yeah like the 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 inclusion of Bill Gates and the WEF is a little bit curious uh, or it's just you know it's worth noting yeah or maybe you know I like mean, uh, <clears throat> like they obviously Bill Gates like obviously has different priorities uh, in terms of the well, I just feel like I don't know well certainly in a post nine eleven climate even in two thousand five like part <laughs> of the point of these things and like also the infection rates are also like you know, just they're depicted worse than they, I think they even are historically, you know, like, uh, and the whole point of these things is that like, no matter what they do, it's going to be like horrible. Cause the point is to scare people or to scare like, you know, the participants who are like policymakers into doing something. Uh, it mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have like really, well, that's the idea anyway. That's like what the, you know, point of these war games is, uh, you know, or like these sort of, uh, gaming scenarios um is to scare the participants into into taking action about something um mm-hmm. so yes. yeah i mean like maybe uh the you know yeah i guess it's still held at johns hopkins um but maybe the uh maybe the goals of like the organizing you know the organizations organizing it are a little bit different or you know yeah i wonder uh because event 201 has definitely bill gates is like a big you know, uh, he's, he's a big villain of the, pl- of the pandemic kind of narrative. So maybe that's part of why oh, yeah. event 201 has stuck out. Whereas usually when these things are organized for like Congress or, or, or whatever, uh, maybe they do kind of have that bioterror aspect. Um, like, yeah, that, that's kind uh, of perhaps. not Bill Gates' yeah. bag. Like Bill Gates doesn't, uh, you know, on the yeah. surface, Bill Gates doesn't do homeland security, counterterrorism type stuff. That's not what he's interested in. That's not what moves him. You know, it's really about global health and education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and and just connecting every like, <clears throat> yeah, that, that he has a much more benign sweater 
kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, persona that doesn't lend itself where you have all these old diplomats and generals and CIA spooks. However, if you scratch just a little bit below the surface of Event 201, you'll find that one of the players in that is um, is newly nominated uh, CIA girl boss director Avril Haines. Mm. Yeah. So was she a, was. Yeah. So maybe she'll have internalized some of the lessons of Event Two Hundred One. Yeah, um, she might. I didn't yeah. see the the. I didn't see the cast list necessarily, but she may have played the director of the CIA in Event Two Hundred One. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah. Uh. That's interesting. Um. Mm-hmm. I. Yeah. Well, I wonder what the big. I assume the big takeaway of Event Two Hundred One was similar to that of dark winter just like we're extremely poorly prepared um and we need to you know make these changes like uh post haste um but i wonder if there's anything specific uh you know to to that Uh, i'm trying to i'm trying to access the uh I'm, i'm trying to access the a paper that was written about event 201 uh maybe it's like a really detailed breakdown of Exactly. Yeah. They did <clears throat> you know, what its conclusions were? It. Yeah. Okay. Mm, but I guess maybe you, this was written in have... advance. Oh, it, uh, there is a cast list. Uh, Latoya Abbott, Risk Management and Global Senior Director of Occupational Health Services for the Marriott. Uh, there was Sophia Borges, uh, Senior Vice President of the UN Foundation. Brad Conant, President of the U.S. Medical Group. Christopher Elias, President, Global Development Division at the Development of the Gates Foundation. Tim Evans, former Senior Director of Health for the World Bank Group. George Gao, Director General, Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Avril Haines, like you said, former Deputy Director, CIA, former Deputy mm-hmm. National Security Advisor. Jane Halton, Board Member, ANZ Bank. Uh, Matthew Harrington, Global Chief Operations Officer, Edelman. Martin Nutschkel, uh, 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 Head of Crisis, mm-hmm. Emergency, and Business Continuity Management at Lufthansa. Uh, Lufthansa, a group Lufth- airline. Lufthansa, Ed- yeah. Yeah, uh, Eduardo Martinez, president at the UPS Foundation. Stephen Red, Hatsi Taki, Adrian Thomas. Uh, uh, yeah, Hatsi Taki, I guess, is vice president executive advisor at NBC Universal Media. Adrian Thomas, hmm. uh, Johnson and Johnson, vice president. Uh, Lavan wow. chief representative, Monetary Authority of Singapore. Um, so this seems like, yeah, it's definitely very different tenor just in terms of the kind of people involved, you know, whereas Dark Winter is much more, uh, you know, U.S. centered where someone's playing the president. It seems almost like these are like the technocrats who are going to mm-hmm. be, you know, modeling like what decisions they'll be making, uh, you know, and uh, that type of thing, like uh, having, you know, maybe the postal workers. So... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I just noticed looking at it here that um, the WF, uh, the World Economic Forum, actually was involved with Clade X in 2018. So that was their first foray into pandemic mm-hmm. simulations. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess that, yeah, I guess they liked it so much they signed up for another one in 2019. Um, yeah. And I guess they both, um, 
I'm reading from a pretty uh, an article that does not trust these people, so we'll see uh, <laughs> what direction it goes in. But okay. uh, I guess it does summarize that both simulations concluded that the world was not prepared for a global pandemic. And a few short months following the conclusion of Event 201, which specifically simulated a coronavirus outbreak, the WHO officially declared that the coronavirus had reached pandemic status on March 11th, 2020. Um, and I guess uh, this is a quote from the uh, from Event 201. The next severe pandemic will not only cause great illness and loss of life, but could also trigger major cascading economic and societal consequences that could, could contribute greatly to global impact and suffering. Um, what the fuck is global impact? <laughs> like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, um, like kind of yeah, weaselly con- terms contributing there. Contributing to global impact doesn't really make any sense. You could say have a global impact, uh, like have a big global impact and cause a lot of suffering or something, you I know, guess, I guess they want to impact mm, and suffering. I, uh, uh, I think they're yeah, kind of dancing around uh, the thing where the part where all like a huge swath of like global wealth gets funneled into like the bank accounts of like several hundred billionaires and associated families, etc., and impoverishes the whole world, I guess, but they don't want to say that because they're the very people that would benefit from, this type of yeah. uh, pandemic triggered economic collapse. Um, you know, it says right here that uh, this article is about Klaus Schwab, the Great Reset, and the WDFs. You know, all the connections between that and Bill Gates, and you know these simulations and everything. Um, they they write here that since then, since October twenty nineteen, just about every scenario covered in the Claydex and Event two hundred one simulations has come into play, including. Governments implementing lockdowns worldwide, the collapse of many industries, growing mistrust between governments and citizens, a greater adoption of biometric surveillance technologies, social media censorship in the name of combating misinformation, the desire to flood communication channels with, quote, authoritative sources, a global lack of personal protective equipment, the breakdown of international supply chains, mass unemployment, rioting the streets, uh, and a whole lot more. Um, and, <laughs> and then, you know, just like... Uh, you know, just out of the I blue, mean, after the night after the nightmare scenarios had been fully materialized by mid twenty twenty, the WEF founder Klaus Schwab declared, "quote Now is the time for a great reset." In June of this year, was it excellent forecasting, planning, and modeling on the part of the WEF and partners that Claydex and Event two hundred one turned out to be so prophetic, or was there something more to it? Well, I don't know. Is there something more to yeah. it? I mean, feels that way. I mean, it definitely is interesting that like this same center that did Dark Winter eventually did this. That kind of sh- and you can follow the different organ like the different sort of uh, exercises from Dark Winter to Claydex to Atlantic Storm. You know, or Dark Winter to Atlantic Storm to Claydex, and mm-hmm. uh, then to this, and you can see how the framing is transforming in real time in a way where like originally mm-hmm. it's like very hyper focus on that bioterrorism angle and has all mm-hmm. the attendant blind spots and a lot of the response kind of dealt with the blind spots involved in that and the fact that that very paradigm is not or like you know the it, it's sort of the way that it changes like it's still like the same D, like the same dna or the same rna if you will uh where like mm-hmm. it's the same <laughs> basic like war scenario the same basic war game but it's changed yeah. to reflect the like the landscape of the war and like through an evolving understanding of how these things are post 9-11 just like you know uh that dude uh uh i think it was roman 
the guy who wrote the the dark winner of biological terrorism article um mm-hmm. that answer homeland security fellow just like he said like you know national security is a different thing from homeland security where like you know there are all these different people you know like having the ups guy there like there was no ups yeah. guy at dark winter you know he said like that uh-huh. exact thing it was like postal workers are involved in this war you know things like that uh well, yeah, i mean you I, see I, it trickle down throughout anthrax but yeah you know, yeah like, uh, yeah this, but, but they you did do have see a it trickle play in this yeah uh, you do see it trickle yeah. down like you know if you see something say something remember those those billboards all over the new york subways you know in the yeah. 2000s you know, um, it kind of like, you know, uh, trying to deputize almost everybody into this like broader yeah. effort or just realizing that you have to do that. And it probably has something to do also with the construction of DHS fusion centers after 9-11 in every kind of metropolitan area in the, like every region in the country has like an intelligence fusion center that kind of never get talked about anymore. But I, I they still absolutely exist. And, you know, they synthesize kind of like I think maybe even. Uh, in some cases, foreign intelligence with FBI, with DHS, with all the other big agencies and local law enforcement. And I think even that was like, in some ways, uh, I've seen some stuff that it was kind of modeled after the prototype for that was developed in the Phoenix program in Vietnam, of course. Uh, But anyways, like, you know, in general, you do see like this idea that you need to go deeper than just kind of a top down uh, national security president calling the shots kind of thing it needs to be it needs to seep into the groundwater right well yeah like like the entire culture yeah i mean i guess like at this point there are people who are like 20 years old which is mind-boggling to me like people who are i guess you know 19 or 20 who like their whole lives have had like homeland security being like a big thing but i remember like before and after like homeland security like you know there was a dhs you know i I remember that Mm -hmm. like and i like this is a whole new like area that like has kind of been opened up you know uh and like it's take it's you know people have been theorizing about how to really secure the homelands and the understanding of that has evolved in a way where you know, it might not even be, like, under the umbrella even of the term homeland security. Like, you know, you wouldn't necessarily associate uh, Event 201 with such a thing. But, like, it still is in that lineage, you know, from the, mm-hmm. the center's earlier exercises at the same center at Johns Hopkins, you know, with involvement of a lot of the same parties. Maybe not Bill Gates, but, like, a lot of the same parties at the same sort of, you know, uh, thing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, convened in the same way uh yeah it's uh it's interesting i don't I, I know think... if like that means i like i said i think that like you know people knew it was a question of if like you know, it wasn't a question of if it was a question of when there was going to be like a coronavirus pandemic but the you know obviously it was something that was expected and there were like mechanisms in place and there were you know uh certain people were more attuned to the you know that eventuality than others and yeah uh, yeah you know i definitely think that it has been instrumentalized in, in certain ways by uh you know that, that, i mean this is not really debatable um and like that there there's a level at which you know as we kind of talked about there's like the bare facts of science and logic you know they are they do go through despite like what a lot of people reflexively think where, like, the science is what it is, you know, they they mm-hmm. are filtered through a certain prism of the social implementation of these things. In the same yes. way where, like, there's a social aspect to how these pandemics manifest, 
in terms of like the layout of society, the different, uh, you know, social structures, the different, uh, aspects of inequality or whatever uh you know mm-hmm. uh such in the yugoslavian example uh how what an impact the socio-ethnic tensions as you mentioned as a uh, strong it had contributed to a great impact um i think that yeah. also like uh you know uh, uh the that that uh, contributes to uh a great impact uh <laughs> here uh, as well um yeah you know, so. <laughs> Well, yeah. it, it also makes me think that, you know, when these guys come out and they say with Claydex and Event 201 that, like, what we've learned from this is that the United States is not... There's a supreme irony going on when these guys come out and say that <clears throat> our exercise um, demonstrates that the United States is not ready for a pandemic of this magnitude and, you know, what could happen as a result of it. But the actual purpose of the exercise, I feel, is that they're getting prepared, not necessarily getting prepared to, you know, just like meet the public health challenge, but in a way like they are they were not totally caught unawares by the developments that came out of this crisis. And in a way, Mm -hmm. like it's like the ruling class was prepared for this, whether you know, even leaving aside the question of like, how did this virus like, you know, emerge or escape or do whatever it did? Like, where did it really come from? Is there any kind of like agency behind it being released? I don't know. But but either. Yeah. Regardless of what way you cut it, they were ready for something like this to come down the pike so that it can absolutely capitalize on it. And well, that's what's interesting, because, yeah, as a cataclysm. uh, yeah, well, that, like, yeah, that's, like, the thing. Like, really, like, if you follow it back to, like, if you put, put this in the same lineage as Dark Winter, which you definitely can, uh, and you say this, you know, this has really been something that they've been, like, training on since 2001. And, yeah, if you look at it mm-hmm. one way, it's like, oh, wow, you know, they didn't do anything. Like, they didn't implement, like, any of the uh, lessons that they were supposed to have learned from this. Like, you know, there's still, like you know, it was still basically like there was nothing in place to, to deal mm-hmm. with this. Uh, you know, the preparedness mm-hmm. that you would think wasn't there. But, like, it's definitely something that in these sectors people have been, like, thinking about and engaging with and considering, at least. Certainly, like, you know, uh, anyone who attended, uh, you know, um, anyone who attended Dark Winter or uh, Event 201 or subsequently mm-hmm. heard a report mm-hmm. about it, from a participant or, you know, was briefed on it in any way, probably Mm -hmm. gave like significantly more thought to like this type of thing than like the average person did. Um, and like, was that like, was it fully sufficient? Like, uh, you know, I I think that certainly like some people, I think certainly Bill Gates, you know, probably spends a lot of time thinking about the eventuality of a, of a pandemic, uh, and other such people who were like very, uh, interested in that idea. Um, uh, yeah, but, thirsting for you know, it. Uh, yeah, like, uh, but uh, certainly, like, uh, more than uh, the the average person, uh, even though there's, uh, you know, maybe a range within such people, I think that, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. You could say, like, that uh, there was a lack of preparedness, but maybe, like, the, the lack of preparedness just, they just weren't prepared in the ways that you would want. <laughs> then that was maybe perhaps something that yes. just wasn't a priority. 
you know, another, it goes back to like who's yeah, like whose yeah. power are they serving? Like whose interests are they serving? And it is not there's the esoteric and the exoteric kind of um description of what they're up to and it's pretty easy for them to kind of just like not even I feel like event 201 is almost curious and kind of how suspicious it looks but then eh, he knows that nobody on CNN is going to ask him about it nobody you know what I mean like no serious journalist is going to uh is going to you know bump up against uh you know Bill Gates in fact I just thought you know we've been we've been you know playing a little bit fast and loose with the facts right now. So I think it's time for a fact check from usatoday.com. Uh, I found this great article. Um, it's not quite a no comma, but it is a literal like fact check colon. A Bill Gates backed pandemic simulation in October did not predict COVID-19. So this is like in March 26, at like the scariest, like first wave. I mean, how could you say that it didn't predict COVID-19? I think that it's a different level of reasonability to say like that this wasn't like a proof that Bill Gates did something to cause the COVID pandemic. That's one thing, which I think like it's certainly a reasonable thing to, you know, like uh, that, that's definitely on a different, but to say that it didn't predict it, like that was the point of it was to predict it. Yeah. It was like like they practiced uh, for it. It, it just, you could say it's a coincidence, but uh, that's like the annoying thing. Like, you know, like that's like the annoying, like that's like what's the kind of the same thing. I'm like, no, 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 sir. Like you will not give people the virus by getting the vaccine. You know, it's the kind of the same thing. Like, (laughs) you know, like, no, it did not predict it. Like, because, you know, uh, like, you know what they're actually arguing about, but uh, like, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, of course it did. (laughs) This is also uh, yeah. the the really like important thing that that is happening throughout this entire year is like the manage like the perception management going on now. I think it's reached a level of sophistication that must have been informed by some of these exercises to some degree because they do all talk about like the need to get everybody on board, like down to the you know the postal worker like you need to get kind of the media on message like don't let uh don't tell local politicians things because they'll run around to the press like you know can like kind of like control the flow of information and uh and now with social media and everything else like it's so much easier but i guess hmm in this usa today article i i just think the tone of like news today is it's definitely something that's driving me up a wall to some degree, like the kind of cheap editorializing of like hard news coverage and especially these conspiracy debunker articles that have proliferated in, you know, 2020 from every major outlet. Um, So like it, this is what it says about, okay. So it bolds the claim Bill Gates and the world economic forum predicted the coronavirus pandemic. As the COVID-19 pandemic disrupts the globe, rumors abound online about the origin. On March 16th, at Freedom Faction posted an image on Instagram along with the claim that, quote, COVID-19 was launched a month after billionaire Bill Gates hosted a high-level pandemic exercise event. Quote, hashtag Bill Gates hosted a closed-door meeting for global elites, and the invitation came with a COVID-19 coronavirus plush toy. A few months later, thousands would be dead. The participants of Event 201, invited there by the rich and powerful elites that rule the world, sat and wargamed how an outbreak of COVID-19 coronavirus might go. Looks like the meeting was a success because just one month to the day later, the first case of COVID-19 was reported in China. And, well, you know the rest. Um, 
And I, yeah, um, and you know, so okay, that's obviously putting a spin on it. Um, and but all it says is conspiracy theories about the event have circulated online for months. A January 29th article posted on the website Humans Are Free claimed the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Economic Forum had conducted a pandemic simulation, quote, just six weeks before the real outbreak. They did. That's literally true. Like, that's not false. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. The article then goes on to say, quote, that is one hell of a coincidence if you believe in that sort of thing. It heavily insinuates the baseless claim that the event was conducted as preparation for the current coronavirus outbreak. Although event 201 was a real operation, interesting that they call it an operation. Yeah, <laughs> um, that is weird. It's like, a, it's not, a, it wasn't a government. Yeah. It was a real op. It was a real op. Wow. This article has like done, like, you know, it has done the opposite of its intended goal. By, yeah. By, yeah. It's, I, it's bizarre. Yeah. It's like, it sounds like it was a, written by like a queen or something like, although yeah, it was yeah, an op, yeah. Although event uh, 201 was a real operation, there is no evidence yeah. that it was meant to model or engineer the current COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, yeah, so it says Event 201 was a tabletop exercise that simulated a global pandemic, which resulted from a new coronavirus. Uh, okay, so so far so good. Uh, very similar. The program was hosted in October by the John Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security in partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and World Economic Forum. The invite-only event featured medical professionals, policy experts, and business analysts and future CIA directors all focused on how different institutions would respond to the onset of a deadly virus. The fictional coronavirus, a coronavirus in general, being a specific kind of virus, in the scenario killed 65 million people over 18 months. Joint recommendations right. from participants urge international cooperation both in preparing for and handling a pandemic. Um, the Center of Health Security has hosted three pandemic simulations prior to Event 201, uh, going back to a 2001 simulation known as Dark Winter. The octo- so I guess it was. These, this is like There are the four of these, and Event 201 yeah. is the, the most recent. Uh, the October simulation was the first time the center included private sector actors in its exercises in hopes of modeling how they might also react in such a crisis. The host responds to the prediction claim. Okay, so they made a statement. The Johns Hopkins did. They said, to, quote, to be clear, the Center for Health Security and Partners did not make a prediction during our tabletop exercise. That's so annoying. Yeah. Uh, that's so ridiculous. Yeah, and... Well, I mean, it is fair, like, what they say subsequently, that they, they, like, sorry, I'm reading the article now as you're reading it, but, like, they say, we are not now predicting that the COVID-19 outbreak will kill 65 million people, which, you know, is, that's, like, much fewer than have died worldwide of COVID at this point. But if you read a little bit further down the article, you know, they have a quote from Bill Gates where he says, like, in the past week, COVID-19 has started behaving a lot like the once-in-a-century pathogen we've been worried about. I hope it's not bad, but we should assume it will be until we know otherwise. Like, to say okay. we should assume... Like, that's... That, like, to say that, like, you know, when you're someone like Bill Gates, who I guess for whatever reason people invest such authority in these matters, like, mm-hmm. that is, like, a borderline irresponsible statement in a way, or at least, I don't know if you... Even if you don't want to call it irresponsible, it's certainly, like affects like the way that people perceive this and thereby like affects its manifestation because insofar as the real thing caused by molecules is also a social phenomenon and when this guy who people trust says like we should assume that this is going to kill 65 million people like 
you know, until we know otherwise, which like we, you yeah. know, who, by the uh, way, who, by the way, like, like we talk, there's all this like, you know, uh, suspending Twitter accounts and like pulling news articles for being like disinformation or, or medical opinions from people who aren't credentialed experts. Bill Gates has zero fucking background in medicine. He literally is like, he's not a doctor. He doesn't have any, he, like, he didn't even study it in college. Like, he's a computer guy. He's a tech business person. Yeah, you know? it's, it's I this mean, weird, like, technocrat thing where, like, somehow his, like, you know, whiz kid status, like, he's just so smart because he's rich. Like, you know, uh, so therefore that knowledge is transferred to everything. Yeah, because mommy got him a contract at IBM, which made his entire fucking career. Uh, he gets to decide what happens with like global health policy. Um, it's very odd, but yeah, like uh, it, anyway, like to say that like it doesn't in some way for one, like I, yeah, this is, like, yeah, this is, I, I definitely understand how, like, the hectoring, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this a lot of the time on the podcast, so the, the hectoring, like, tenor of a lot of these articles is very grating. I think that does, in many ways, contribute to, like, the sort of, di like, dissimulation and disingenuous, you can see, disingenuous as you can see in this article, contributes to the health crisis, because when you read this, like, the effect is to, like, you know, it, the effect is almost indisputably to reinforce, like, anyone who has any suspicions. Like, it does not allay anyone's fears about this. Like, to say, like, to say that this wasn't, like, a prediction. Because that was the, the goal, was to predict and, in mm -hmm. fact, prepare people for something that they believed would happen and that Bill Gates later said, like, looked like what we were, you know, trying to model and that we should assume it is like that until we know otherwise. And then to rate that as false, like, no. Like, the point is to prepare people for, you know, of course, yeah, there's some certain exaggerations, like, as there always have been with this dark winter stuff, because the whole point is to be, like, kind of a scare tactic, like, uh, you know, at least as a stated goal, and they've always extremely, you know, uh, you know, they're always sort of uh, hyperbolized in, in certain ways, certain aspects of them are, are exaggerated, but, mm -hmm. you know, to say that, like, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up, like, it's not, like, to say that, like, our ruling is false, like, yeah, it literally says our yeah. ruling false in big bold letters, and then it shows their uh, fact check sources, which are like all like like it's just they're they're kind of like miscategorized. Yeah, it, it, like they're twisting it around and they're kind of judging it on like this extremely there, narrow yeah, band. Say, there of, is like, no reason true. to believe. There is no reason to believe that the current pandemic will resemble. Yeah, exactly. That's the narrow thing of like we didn't make a prediction. Like, like, you know, if they said, like, it, it had to be, get at a crystal ball and be, like, in six months, there will be a coronavirus, like, but, like, it still is a prediction that, like, you know, eventually, like, this is, you know, it's not a prediction, but it's an assumption that this is a, something that we need to be prepared for. Uh, so yeah, it's even more than yeah. a prediction. It's, like, you know, uh, a basic presumption. <sighs> but, yeah, they said, like, there is no reason to believe that the current pandemic will resemble the event to a one simulation despite coincidences in the modeling and timing of the simulation. Okay, so this is like... It's like shifting the goalposts, basically. Well, for one, like, this is a huge, like, this basically, this all hinges on, like, some kind of difference between the idea of, like, resemblance and coincidence. Really, a resemblance yeah. is simply a coincidence in appearance. When two appearances coincide, then they resemble one another. <laughs> like, you uh -huh. know, so, like, uh -huh. if there's a global pandemic involving a coronavirus, then that is a resemblance. And yeah, like, you know, because those aspects of the simulation and our current reality coincide, 
they resemble one another. Like it, uh, like yeah, yeah. Uh, but but so that, like for to, some reason that 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 can't be admitted in the like that's too far for a lot of these like fact checky type articles to go anymore. And it to has simply say it's a coincidence, and it's it doesn't have a deeper significance beyond that. It's just like an but just acknowledging that it's an odd like for kind of interesting coincidence and like. Eh, if those things happen but like they can't even give that much of an inch anymore they have to completely kind of like like focus like neurotically on the idea of like well it said it would kill 65 million people you see and this virus only has yeah. killed like 10 million people so it's a completely it's, different scenario it's like you're missing the point like that's not the connection that people are kind of being drawn to here that well, the numbers really, yeah. were the same or something or that it was like tr- like it's supposed to be yeah yeah this is about like training people for a crisis situation that is very similar yeah. to the one that ended up happening like uh, a couple months later and, yeah it really um, is like it really feels almost like that that is published like actually like the stated goal of that is the like i you know if i were gonna make up my own conspiracy like you know right now it would be that the goal of that article is actually to promote like the you know the ideas that it's supposed to be debunking because to me like for one even the like idea that they were alleged like you know they were disputing like that maga meme that was like you know, uh, or whatever, you know, that I assume it's like a MAGA, uh, inflected type thing, but you know, whatever, yeah, like that, yeah. an- you know, that, <laughs> it was, uh, it was like, pandemic. it was on some website about apocalyptic yeah. end times, like Christian stuff. So, yeah, but I, like, uh, but w- what they said basically was like a pretty big coincidence if you believe in that type of thing. And like, yeah. you know, so that's what anyone that ended up saying, like, yeah, we believe in coincidences and it was a big coincidence. So ultimately yes. like what they're doing is agreeing with, the thesis uh that if you believe in it it's a big coincidence but then there's of course the implication that like is can't be a coincidence but i mean really if they wanted to they should say like you know there's no evidence that like you know bill gates uh like caused this had, i don't think that that would have had anything either, to do but what they did yeah but like what they did was like they went too much like too far they like like mm-hmm. overshot it by a mile like, you know, there's nothing, again, all that there is is a coincidence, which to some people suggests certain things, but that's, like, the, the issue, like, to say that, like, you know, uh, this isn't a prediction or something, like, you know, like, to say that there, you know, there's they no... Were, it there's it no, is true that they weren't trying to predict, yeah. but also nobody is alleging that they were, like, predicting it, like, that's not exactly what, like, the insinuation is, is that they were, like, predicting, like, that. that's just not... It's it, it makes your brain kind of hurt. And it makes me wonder if it is some kind of weird, sophisticated, like reverse psychology psyop to like uh, to like turn people's brains to mush. Like if they you either have to like just buy it and eat the eat the lie and just, uh, you know, um, or you enter this like place of like oppressive cognitive dissonance of like, ah, like, I don't know, in the vein of what you said, though, about, yeah, maybe it's like so bad that you wonder if it's deliberate. Um, I found this BBC article that was more recent from uh, November 22nd that is almost even more mind-bogglingly bad in terms of its uh, its debunking um, attempts. Uh, and it's, it's from a segment, a little BBC. They have their own segment now called BBC Reality Check. 
So, yeah, you can get all your good debunking articles in one place. It's called The Coronavirus Great Reset Theory and a False Vaccine Claim Debunked. So they say, uh, this is more about the Great Reset, and I think what they do here is kind of uh, pretty wild. Uh, They say, misinformation about a COVID-19 vaccine and pandemic conspiracy theories continue to thrive on social media. Here's what we've been fact-checking this week. Justin Trudeau and The Great Reset. We start with a revival of the baseless conspiracy theory known as the Great Reset. Okay, it's literally a a fucking policy program, whatever. Um, The revival of the baseless conspiracy theory known as the Great Reset, which claims a group of world leaders orchestrated the pandemic to take control of the global economy. The conspiracy theory has its origins in a genuine plan entitled the Great Reset, drawn up by the World Economic Forum, the organizers of an annual conference for high-profile figures from politics and business. The plan explores how countries might recover from the economic damage caused by the coronavirus pandemic. The WEF recovery plan has been interpreted as sinister, first by fringe conspiracy theory groups on social media, and then by prominent conservative commentators, prompting tens of thousands of interactions across Facebook and Twitter. It started trending globally on Twitter last week, when a video of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at a UN meeting saying the pandemic provided an opportunity for a, quote, reset, went viral. This sparked fresh claims from people within Canada and further afield that a cabal of global leaders is using the pandemic to introduce a range of damaging socialist and environmental policies. When asked about conspiracy theories at the end of the week, Mr. Trudeau said, I think we're in a time of anxiety where people are looking for reasons for things that are happening to them. We're seeing a lot of people fall prey to disinformation. A video from August, which now has close to 3 million views on YouTube, believes only Donald Trump can thwart this secret plot, which uses COVID-19 to bring the U.S. economy to its knees so the, quote, reset can begin and people would be, quote, begging for vaccines. But the suggestion that politicians plan the virus or are using it to destroy capitalism is wholly without evidence. So, too, is the notion that the World Economic Forum has the authority to tell other countries what to do or that it is coordinating a secret cabal of world leaders. Uh, and then it talks about a new French documentary called The Hold Up, um, which is kind of uh, being called the uh, Retour sur un chaos, um, uh, which is, uh, I guess, the French uh, pandemic movie kind of um, uh, that promises to reveal, quote, the truth uh, about COVID-19. Instead, it promotes a slew of previously debunked claims, including allegations that wearing masks is dangerous and global elites somehow plan the, the pandemic. Um, and it, I guess, uh, you know, YouTube says uh, they've called people have called for YouTube to like ban it. But YouTube says the video does not violate its misinformation policies, although it says it has limited its spread in accordance with its rules on tackling content that could misinform users in harmful ways. Okay, so you can have like 95-hour Elsagate videos like all over the place, but they throttle like the spread of videos that, okay, whatever. Um, and I guess, um, yeah, there's something, uh, the, they have a bunch of things on here, but I guess the main thing is like the great reset kind of, um, so I, I think what's interesting there is like the way that they're characterizing the world economic forum as just like the organizers of an annual conference for high profile figures from politics and business. And like, uh, you know, basically I don't even think they're really alleged. I mean, besides the idea that like, you know, they did the pandemic on purpose. Yeah, but well, that's the key thing, I think. Like, that's the, you know, and that can, like, shitcoat, like, anything 
uh, to do with this, like, at all. Which is the, like, yeah. thing, like, that, you know, Bill Gates, like, launched it somehow. You know, like, or, like, like he that. He did it. Which is, like... He did it. And that, you know, uh, yeah. And I almost feel like that uh, really, like, poisons the well in some way. Because, like, whether or not you believe that, like, you know, uh, I don't, like, you know, I'm not really... Well, what I will say is that there is no denying that, like, you know the way that these things manifest, the way that, like, science and diseases play out is as much a social phenomenon as it is, like, a material, you know, like, a, a, a basic physical chemical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, like, totally. the way that the social dynamics are affecting how this, uh, like, you know, happens. So, like, everything that has an effect on that vis-a-vis, like, you know, with, regarding the virus has an effect on, like, you know, the pandemic itself. Like, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not, like, immaterial. Like, that is as, like, uh, tangible and as, you know, related directly to, like, this pandemic as anything. Like, the perception of it, the symbolism of it, like, that is all, uh, like, highly relevant. So, like, you know, in uh, dealing with this, like, that is, like, very uh, much, uh, you know, a thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. a like and you know definitely like elites have a huge hand in shaping like the social response, the social manifestation, the social component of it. But like you know uh, the idea that you at least can never establish that provably and probably like you know there's definitely going to be a reaction of skepticism to it, especially when it's something as facile as like you know Bill Gates is doing it because he's trying to make people take the mark of the beast like through the vaccine like i feel mm-hmm. like you know my personal really thing is, easy like, to shit coat yeah i feel like if cotton mather was like in favor of like inoculations um you know mm. then uh i am not sure that like the mark of the beast like you know I, I don't think there's anything inherently mark of the beast any more mark of the beast to vaccines than there is to like you know rfid chips and stuff i'm very much anti yes. like cyborgification any kind of microchip. But, like, again, like, there isn't really a microchip being implanted in you through the vaccine. If there were, that would be another thing. But, like, when people say that, then it's, like, and someone's, like, correction, like, there is no, like, you know, uh, like, everything that Bill Gates says is true because he's not putting a microphone, microchip in you or something like that. So, like, it becomes, mm-hmm. like, this weird, yeah, it's a shit code, basically. Um, yeah, Where, yeah. like, you can be, and- like, well, because there's no microchip, then... Like, there's no reason to have any kind of, like, nuanced take on this. Uh, Yeah, exactly. It just serves to... And actually, wouldn't you know that basically one of the takeaways from Event 201 uh, that they ended up recommending was for governments to partner with social media companies and news organizations to censor content and control the flow of information. Their quote uh, from the simulation is, yeah, media companies should commit to ensuring that authoritative messages are prioritized and that false messages are suppressed, including through the use of technology. Mm, cool. Um, and But then you get this, like, this type of shit, <laughs> where it's like, uh, there's nothing weird about the Great Reset, stop being a weirdo and worrying about it, and, you know, it's all going to be great. Um, yeah. I just want to see real quick, like, what actually the Great Reset is uh is saying like you know oh they have a they have a micro site great oh and a great reset podcast he's got a klaus schwab has a uh cool podcast um 
And yeah. let's see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he wants to... This is our best chance. Uh, we He says, we can emerge from this crisis a better world if we act quickly and jointly, right, Schwab? The changes we have already seen in response to COVID-19 prove that a reset of our economic social foundations is possible. This is our best chance to instigate stakeholder capitalism. And here's how it can be achieved. <laughs> okay, right there, that pisses me off about the BBC and every other organization that is writing about this, where they only highlight the sort of wacky, not really accurate uh kind of conspiracy yeah. theories coming from right-wing people that think this is like a communist takeover of like the global yeah. economy and that mm-hmm. it's somehow not part of capitalism that these are like you know a crypto like maoists or something that want to or, or trotskyites or something that want to institute like a global communist one world government when he says it outright that he like he says you know um in short uh, we need a quote great reset of capitalism. So like, he's and of course, yeah. If you're a kind of more conservative thinker on like economic issues, you would see that as like a Trojan horse phrase. Oh, you want to you yeah. want to reset capitalism? Okay, commie. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, of yeah. Course. but like let's stop for a second and think. This guy is a West German, like a fucking. 70-something-year-old, like, West German rich guy who hobnobs with, like, European high finance and founded this World Economic Forum, which um, I can only imagine if you kick that rock over what kind of creepy crawlies are going to be, you know, in its history. Um, and, um, And basically this guy is, like, a secret, like, Marxist. He's not even talking. I mean, like... It just seems like, uh, no, like it's just like very obvious that I think I maybe, you know, you have to take him at his word to some extent, like, and he's not going to get the biggest corporations in the world to go along with him if he's a secret communist, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, never going to happen. Mean, certainly you know? that's not the case, like that this dude is like a secret communist at all. Um, like, uh, you know, and Yeah, I mean, like, in theory, like, the idea of, like, a great reset, like, in a vague way, like, uh, sounds fine, I guess. Like, I mean, if it were good. Yeah, if it were good, if, like, all the bad things were, like, you know, gone and only good things, like, were left in place, uh, when we reset. But you know that's, like, not the case, uh, at all. (laughs) Because, Mm -hmm. like, all the people who, like, control the current system are the ones who are orchestrating the reset. So that's why everyone's Mm. suspicious of it. That's why they think that they're going to use that to cement their control, not to like make it, you know, not to make things better for the people who suffer under the existing system, but to make it worse because like Mm -hmm. they are currently in control. Like it's not a reset, like, you know, for anyone, but for that, like, you know, it's orchestrated by the people who like are in a position to orchestrate a reset of capitalism Mm -hmm. like aka like the arch capitalists so yeah yeah this is the stakeholder uh, i mean that that's the the real stakeholder capitalist i mean capitalism has always been stakeholder capitalism it says he means it in like a bullshit way to be like we're all gonna be stakeholders yeah exactly no like there's the big stakeholders and then there's like the little people and yeah. he represents the former, absolutely. He also, I almost forgot that, because this also intersects with, like, 
very clearly with other things that have been brewing for the last couple of years, including the fourth industrial revolution, which is also a yeah, right. kind of brainchild of Klaus Schwab that he started rolling out in 2016 and has had very uh, firm interlocks with like the, the climate justice movement, I guess is what it calls right. itself nowadays. And like Greta Thunberg, um, everybody's favorite, uh, saint, um, everyone's favorite living saint. And like, if you dig, I remember last year I was like digging, you know, kind of in peak, like, how dare you era, um, that I was like digging into the forces, um, kind of behind that, in that, you know, new environmental push to like, you know, we need to like stop, you know, climate change now. Like we can't wait. We have to like shut down, like, you know, whole sectors of, like, the economy and blah, blah, blah. And um, it's like if you just scratch a little bit beneath the surface, it's all, like, billionaires and tech people and bankers and Gettys, literally, um, and, like, and like people that made their for- family fortunes off oil, you know? Like, the Rockefellers are involved. And, um, and it's like they've been cooking up this kind of NGO program for a little while and so the great reset is really in a way it is like the implementation of the ideas that he laid out in like the fourth industrial revolution uh idea Mm -hmm. and um and it it uses very similar language um you know he says in he's wrote in 2016 that we stand on the brink of a technological revolution that will fundamentally alter the way we live work and relate to one another uh, in its scale, yeah. scope, and complexity, the transformation will be unlike anything humankind has experienced before. We do not yet know just how it will unfold, but one thing is clear. The response to it must be integrated and comprehensive, invo- involving all stakeholders of the global polity, from the public and private sectors to academia and civil society. The first industrial revolution, you, I think we talked about these the numbered industrial revolutions in a previous episode. Um, yes, we did. Yeah. yeah, so that's um, this is his answer, finally. Uh, the first Industrial Revolution used water and steam power to mechanize production. The second used electric power to create mass production. The third used electronics and information technology to automate production. Now a fourth Industrial Revolution is building on the third, the digital revolution that has been occurring since the middle of the last century. It is characterized by a fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between the physical, digital, and biological spheres. There are three reasons why today's transformations represent not merely a prolongation of the third industrial revolution, but rather the arrival of a fourth and distinct one, velocity, scope, and systems impact. The speed of current breakthroughs has no Sounds like FT precedent. Marinetti. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, anyway. wow. Um, uh, when compared with previous industrial revolutions, the fourth is evolving at an exponential rather than a linear pace. Moreover, it is disrupting almost every industry in every country, and the breadth and depth of those changes herald the transformation of entire systems of production, management, and governance. The possibilities of billions of people connected by mobile devices with unprecedented processing power, storage capacity, and access to knowledge are unlimited. And these possibilities will be multiplied by emerging technology breakthroughs in fields such as artificial intelligence, robotics, the Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, (laughs) nanotechnology, biotechnology, material science, energy storage, and quantum computing. 
already, ugh, this is creepy, artificial intelligence is all around us, from self-driving cars and drones to virtual assistants and software that translate or invest. Impressive progress has been made in AI in recent years, driven by exponential increases in computing power and by the availability of vast amounts of data, from software used to discover new drugs to algorithms used to predict our cultural interests. Yikes. Digital fabrication technologies, meanwhile, are interacting with the biological world on a daily basis. Engineers, designers, and architects are combining computational design, additive manufacturing, materials engineering, and synthetic biology to pioneer a symbiosis between microorganisms, our bodies, the products we consume, and even the buildings we inhabit. Um, okay, well, here, here's so a big So basically, picture. this uh, is just like a way, the Great Reset is just a way to, it's not a reset at all, it's just like a way to like shill for the same stuff that like Davos and like the World Economic Forum have been promoting for a long time. Like the same exact thing, like, you know, but they're just saying like, oh, well, now's our chance to reset. Uh, but it's well, again, he- just like a rephrasing <sighs> of earlier stuff, like, you know, uh, about how the world's changing, like an interconnected, like uh, just looking at the World Economic Forum right now about us. Like, they mm-hmm. say, our world is an economic system that is straining under the burden of its own complexity. We see numerous factors combined to make the global environment more unpredictable and difficult to navigate. In global governance, we see the post-war balance between nation-states and the institutional framework that work to manage it disintegrating. In its place, we see the emergence of new geoeconomic competition, new regionalism, and new actors. Meanwhile, technological changes disrupting our economies and changing the nature of our globalized world in ways that are both unpredictable and complex. We will witness more technological change over the next decade than we have seen in the past 50 years. Advances in all the sciences, from robotics to genetics to communications and the social sciences, will will leave no aspect of global society untouched around the world. The young generation is demanding to be heard, blah, blah. Like, these factors require a new kind of institution, one with the adaptability, the entrepreneurialism, and the trust of all stakeholders. They that can bring together people who have the power to make change, to achieve mutual understanding and empathy, to come to common agreement and, where appropriate, push action forward. As an international organization with no commercial interest, the forum provides a platform for (laughs) leaders from all stakeholder groups from around the world, business, government, and civil society to come together. So the whole thing, like, you know, it's a crisis. We need to, like, you know, step in and change everything. It's just like, you know, that's, like, what they've been saying for a long time. Like, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's true. Like the world does have kind of a, an emergent crisis where everything is, is in crisis constantly. And the history is like kind of one long unfolding crisis, but, uh, you know, like, again, it's just like, uh, yeah, like them shilling the same thing as always. But now again, it's a window of opportunity for a great reset, uh, mm-hmm. to like do the things yeah. that they've always wished for. Uh, Yeah it's uh yeah i mean when you read about it this this does sound like you know he he kind of you know he he leaves it kind of open to interpretation like uh you know it's extremely vague it's extremely vague uh and he's like maybe this will uh, reduce inequality or maybe it will increase it but i guess only time will tell and i guess we just have to like try to like not (laughs) it not it you know in inaugurate a world of like new like horrible techno feudalism or something well i mean it's extremely meaningless and it's just like you know uh yeah like listen to our partners listen to our you know uh like 
that it wasn't a Klaus Schwab, and, uh, like, you know, we will, like, you know, help, like, continue to empower us, and we'll, like, fix these problems, blah, blah, blah. It's just, like, a way to sustain the relevance, like, of these people. Um, which, you know, I wanted to, uh, read, uh, some of this from a pretty influential book, uh, in social sciences. Speaking of revolutions in the social sciences, it's not, mm -hmm. like, a revolution at this point, because it's pretty dated. It's from, like, the, uh, you know, uh, late 70s, 1979. A lot of people have, like, built on this work by them, but it's by, uh, Elliot Friedson. It's called Illness as Social Deviance. Uh, mm -hmm. and I was reading this, uh, because, you know, he was mentioned a lot in, uh, Barrett's article about Dark Winter and the Spring of 1972, the Yugoslav smallpox outbreak. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, so he, uh, he makes a lot of, uh, good points, uh, very eloquently, I think. Um, uh, talking about, like, the social component of illness, uh, and I think that has some, uh, some, some pertinence here. So he writes... And I think this is, uh, yeah, you'll, uh, I think that you'll pick up on a lot of, uh, resonances with, uh, some of the stuff you've been bringing up. Uh, he says, mm -hmm. in all cases, the idea of deviation from some standard is present, uh, human and therefore social evaluation, what is normal, proper, or desirable is as inherent in the notion of illness as it is in notions of morality, quite unlike neutral scientific concepts like that of quote virus or quote molecule. Then the concept of illness is inherently evaluational. Medicine is a moral enterprise like law and religion, seeking to uncover and control things that it considers undesirable. But as I have already noted, medicine is kept apart from religion and law because, unlike them, it is believed to rest on an objective scientific foundation that eschews moral evaluation. Illness is thought to involve viruses and molecules and thus to constitute a physical reality independent of time, space, and changeable moral evaluation. Thus, from the bones of men long dead, who spoke long-forgotten tongues and practiced now wholly obscure customs, we can independently of their culture draw evidence of fractures, arthritis, rickets, and the like. It is, it is because it is believed to be independent of human culture, though human culture may influence its prevalence and treatment, that illness is felt to be different, more, quote, objective and stable than such clearly social forms of deviance as crime. In this view, illness is biological rather than social deviance, subject to the same biophysical law in man as in mouse, rabbit, or monkey, or bat. Whether we evaluate it or not, it is always there, independent of us. In the same sense, it is independent of medicine, hardly created by it. However, the view of illness as biological deviance is essentially abstract and programmatic. While we may subscribe to it as a measure of faith, we cannot rely upon it as our sole guide for analysis without wholly ignoring the interpretive character of social reality. Only among human animals is there language and meaning. Like, well, you know, he was leaving out dolphins, but we'll, we'll keep that aside. Anyway, uh, he said, okay. in human society, naming something an illness has consequences independent of the biological state of the organism. Uh, he says, it may be argued that medicine is inappropriately placed in the same category as law and religion because law is man-made and therefore varies from one society to another, and religion is based on supernatural revelation, which is not amenable to the usual scientific methods of verification, whereas medicine addresses itself to an unchanging biological reality that is independent of man as the realities of physics and chemistry. The laws of medicine are therefore invariant, unlike those of law, and they are empirically verifiable, unlike those of religion. A broken leg is everywhere the same, and so can hardly be, quote, created by medicine in the same way that lawyers and legislators create law. Such an argument, however, fails to distinguish physical from social reality. I must insist that, just like law and religion, the profession of medicine uses normative criteria to pick out what is what is interested in, and that its work constitutes a social reality that is distinct from 
and on occasion virtually independent of physical reality. Uh, mm, he goes on. The sociologist, yeah. Uh, there's like a, a little bit more about like the profession of uh, doctors, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is good. The sociologist would naturally exclude from his domain any form of deviance, which is believed to have a non-social quote cause. So it is that ordinary disease, which is thought to have biophysical causes, is excluded. Such things as mental illness are included because socially influenced motivation is thought to be one prime element in the ideology. Indeed, most conventional sociological theories of deviance, the thrust of the analysis is to explain, in those theories, the thrust of the analysis is to explain how an individual or a group is motivated to perform a deviant act or take on a deviant attribute. The central explanation of etiology in traditional medicine is a physical event like exposure to a microorganism. The central explanation of the social and psychological science is some kind of motivation. Cancer is excluded not only because it is thought to have a physical cause, but also because, unlike mental illness, socially induced motivation is thought to play no important role in its ideology. Cancer is helped along, it is true, by such elements of social life as the custom that encourages people to inhale tobacco smoke, but it is certainly not caused by the symbolic qualities of social life as such. What is overlooked is that the way people respond toward disease is caused by the symbolic qualities of social life. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, uh, some key uh, doctor stuff here. Uh, he talks about the physician. As I have noted in a number of contexts, quote, the physician is at best a very general occupational type that can only be vaguely contrasted with the, quote, lawyer, the scientist, and the engineer. There are many kinds of physicians in the sense that systematic variations of some significance occur within the general profession. The content of the physician's work influences the kind of emergency he is likely to meet and indeed whether or not his, quote, typical emergency will have the rhetorical force of a life and death matter to those he must persuade. I suggest that while all specialties, and indeed all kinds of work, have their typical emergencies, they vary in the degree to which the emergencies are generally believed by others to be critical enough to warrant suspension of everyday routine, and they vary in the degree to which such emergencies are frequent and characteristic, almost routine. In the specialty of public health, for example, the typical dramatic emergency is the outbreak of a lethal epidemic or of virulent food poisoning, a circumstance that would give the public health officer justification to breach ordinary lines of authority. However, in the United States, such outbreaks are so rare and so comparatively mild, you know, uh, he goes on. Mm, uh, but of course, that, uh, that part's no longer relevant. Uh, but ouch, he says, so now, uh, yeah, yeah. The profession bases its claim for its position on the possession of a skill so esoteric, esoteric, uh, yeah, interesting, or complex that non-members of the p- profession can perform, uh, that non-members cannot perform the work safely or satisfactorily and cannot even evaluate the work properly. On this basis, non-members are excluded from practice and evaluation. Given the exclusion and its implied basic concession of autonomy, I would argue that in spite of any formal administrative framework imposed by the profession, autonomy in controlling its technique allows it to temper many elements of that framework beyond, uh, uh, beyond both the intent and even recognition of its planners and chief executives. This is particularly the case for medicine, where dangerous consequences can follow upon improper work and where the claim of emergency and of possible dangerous consequences is a potent protective device. Um, yeah, and he goes on to, uh, you know, just talk about how physicians often claim there's an emergency when not all other physicians would necessarily agree. Uh, and, you know, he just notes it is his ability to invoke life-threatening emergency and to claim yes. exclusive capacity to evaluate it and solve it that marks a physician uh-huh. off from many other experts and other organizations. 
so they they have a special sta- status like above the law yeah, in a way due to their exactly cast, like where even, they basically yeah. can suspend they can like implement like medical martial law like yeah i, don't know, I the just medical, like I, yeah i just had this horrible emergency. vision of like yeah. uh yeah, it's horrible vision yeah. of like Dr. Max Goodwin like leading like an Einsatz <laughs> group in death squad like hunting down yeah. people posting disinfo about corona like in the name of, you know, truth and fact. Um yeah. or something like it, it's right. absolute worst manifestation, but like the those white yeah. coats being a sign of like a Gestapo chief like, you know, uh but really it's just they're on TikTok like psyoping people all day for the most part. Yeah. And well, I mean, they it, can announce like, restrictions that politicians might not be able to get away with cuz they're Yeah, exactly. The it's it, like it's interesting how, you know, that guy observed like apropos to none of this, like in a situation where like, you know, to even mention, like, a pandemic was like, well, you know, but that's not really something that comes up very often in the United States, you know, like, uh, it's interesting how, like, he lays out, like, the way that a medical emergency functions that's different mm-hmm. from other states of emergency or states of exception, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, can come about, and, like, the, like, you can trace that, I think, in the evolution of the conception of these things uh through like the dark winter like if this had happened uh you know in like i I don't know maybe i'm just like spitballing here but i i feel like if this coronavirus thing had happened in 2001 i mean it would be very different because i think that even things like being able to work from home like weren't fully in place then you know there was still we were still in web Uh, 2.1 yes exactly that's so that's so important yeah Yeah, like could there would there have been this reaction if we didn't have zoom well everything all that infrastructure ready to go but i also think that like we would have like you know invaded some country over it you know like i think that like (laughs) there like there like there would have been like somehow this is like I mean, yeah, exactly. It's hard to say, but, like, the paradigm, like, has changed in a way where I feel like, you know, uh, maybe, like, you know, maybe there would have been some, like, whatever the reality was, maybe the bare facts of the disease would have been, would have matched the dark winter scenario in the way that they now kind of seem to have, you know, despite what you would say today might say, some resemblance to the event 201 scenario. Maybe, like, the social component would have been such that, like, you know, I mean, we invaded Iraq over made-up WMDs, and, like, yeah. everyone at the time, like, you know, so, like, was expecting that there would be, like, you know, some Soviet scientists helping Iraqis, like, to develop, you know, an evil uh, smallpox, you know, uh, bioweapon yeah. or something. I do, I, you know, I, I, I have a suspicion that, like, if this had happened earlier, like, there would have been, like, some kind of war uh, fought over it. Uh, but, maybe, yeah, maybe. Like, yeah. Um... I yeah, mean, it does make you also think of the anthrax thing in late 2001, which, like, there now there's pretty convincing evidence that it was some kind of bizarre inside job. The anthrax came yeah. from a U.S. bioweapons uh, facility, and then, like, the scientist who allegedly did it, like, up and killed himself when uh, suspicion turned to him. Very weird. Yeah. Like, it was used to, like, pass the Patriot Act. And so, so you know, yeah. I mean, if we're talking about, like, like path- deadly pathogens being, like, uh, released exactly. shortly after assumed a war game. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it was, like, assumed to be, like, a bioweapon. Yeah, and, like, was used for, like, this, you know, but... Now the whole yeah it had a terror it had a fake terrorist thing he wrote like death to Israel Allah is great or something on the <laughs> envelope and um, you know it was like yeah. some white guy 
Uh, yeah, and that, but now, like, the whole framework has shifted away from, like, that type of thing, where, like, Muslims yeah. are, you know, up to no good, like, are doing this, or, like, it's a terrorism thing, like that. And, like, in a way, like, it's a less effective method of social control than this. Like, you know, we did then see, this, like, this... civil liberties, especially in certain communities, we saw civil liberties, yeah. like, you know, really attacked under the auspices of fighting terrorism, but it's not yep. as effective as a medical emergency where, yeah. you know, uh, that could apply to everybody, like, you know? Yeah. And even like, you know, in the dark winter scenario, as like, uh, you know, some people have pointed out the focus of a lot of the participants and of the design of the exercise itself was like, who's responsible. And like, you know, how do we deter this? And like, how do we punish them? But if there's no, like, you know, way to punish them, as, you know, that uh, guy pointed out in the article that we read, or if, like, there's no one even to theoretically punish or deter, then the focus shifts to be on, like, the control of the population even more. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, exactly. not to weave a whole pandemic thing, but I'm just saying, you know, it's intriguing. It's an intriguing yeah, progression. Because yeah. I do think that there is, like, there's definitely a social component like to this though it's not just a matter of i agree with friedson's like analysis of like you know the nature of illness in societies where like there are aspects of it that are socially determined i think that like the way this is played out is something that mm -hmm. you know is very much wedded to the circumstances in which it did play out like the other factors yeah. like you know the ones that we mentioned trump being president etc zoom yes. blah, blah blah like you know and even like the expectation of this by people in power. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, which, exactly. Like, yeah, which, like, was, right. you know, a legitimate expectation that there would eventually be, like, a, you know, a novel coronavirus that would be, like, you know, scary and bad. But, like, yeah, that expectation definectly shaped the response to this. The expect- mm -hmm. Like, Bill Gates' yeah. wargaming out of 65 million deaths has shaped the response to this uh, actual yeah. You know. Which he was shouting from the rooftops back in April that this is the once in a century, it's going to be so bad, and then now he's backtracked on it and said, well, I never predicted that specifically, you know, like, just so yeah. obnoxious. Um, I think um, I think we're, like, we're, we're, we're coming up on three soon, but maybe just to, like, close out real quick, I, I just wanted to circle back to our, our buddy Klaus Schwab. Um, okay. Um, of whom, like, nothing about his uh, family or young childhood being born in Nazi Germany uh, exists on the internet. Just putting that out there. Um, there's nothing about him before he founds the World Economic Forum in 1971 when he's already a professor. Mm -hmm. So uh, so there, you know, he's just a, a good-hearted German engineer who just wanted to help European companies manage uh, things better or whatever. So, I mean, I, I don't think we mentioned explicitly, but, like, basically, uh, in, in case most people probably are aware of this, but, like, World Economic Forum hosts Davos every year. Like, so right. this is, like, the ultimate meeting of the kind of global super elites and the super capitalists. And I just wanted to like read through a couple of, um, for anybody maybe that thinks, yeah, maybe Klaus Schwab, uh, is a secret, you know, communist or something, just like a few of the guests and keynote speakers that he has had, um, as well as, um, some of the people that he's recruited to run it. Uh, one of whom was, um, Jose Maria Figueres, the former president of Costa Rica, 
um, who went to West Point and was the son of like a three time president in his own right. Um, and I guess got kicked out over, he had to like resign in 2004 over some kind of, uh, accounting like some kind of embezzlement ish kind of scandal <laughs> yeah. um oh yeah uh, like he, he undeclared receipt of more than nine hundred thousand dollars in consultancy consultancy fees from the french telecommunications firm alcatel um which is cool in 2006 uh they the wf published an article in its global agenda magazine uh called boycott israel um but then they like apologized uh and said it was an unacceptable failure in the editorial process um they actually invited north korea to davos in 2016 but then um and north korea to their credit has uh, refused to attend davos since 1998 and uh, they almost did, but then they did nuclear tests, and so Davos revoked it. And this uh, is kind of interesting. Uh, in 2018, you know, for anybody who thinks that, you know, this is a radical left-wing guy here, uh, in 2018, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi gave the plenary speech, becoming the first head of right. state from India to deliver the inaugural keynote. Modi highlighted global warming, terrorism, and protectionism <laughs> as the three <laughs> major global did. challenges. And guess who, um, guess who guess who gave the keynote address in 2019? Uh, Brazilian uh, President Jair Bolsonaro gave the keynote oh, address. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, word. on his first uh, on his first international trip to Davos, he emphasized liberal economic policies despite his populist agenda and attempted he to reassure he, he attempted to reassure the world that Brazil is a protector of the rainforest while utilizing its resources for food production and export. Um, and I guess uh, yeah, so uh, inviting Modi. And hire Bolsonaro. Reassured. Yeah, to be like the keynote speakers. Like, you know, I, yeah, uh, what? <laughs> That's extremely cool. Extremely. Uh, and also, yeah. just, uh, just something I noticed earlier was that, um, David Gergen, I think, serves on the board of like the World Economic Foundation. And remember, he mm -hmm. played the national security advisor in Dark Winter. So all these guys kind of um i think gergen is skull and bones because he went to yale so i, I haven't mm -hmm. confirmed that but um but yeah i mean if you look at like these people god all these people that are on the the board of trustees uh, mark benioff big ngo uh you know salesforce guy al gore yo-yo ma jack ma <laughs> um you know just like uh just Oh, these these amazing international elites that want mm -hmm. sustainable yeah. stakeholder capitalism and are willing to work with uh, like probably cocaine trafficking uh, Central American presidents who went to West Point and uh, like people in Bohemian Grove and uh, let's see yeah I mean even actually the 2020 Davos meeting. Uh, both George Soros and Donald Trump were there and Greta Thunberg. <laughs> so isn't it funny? Like Davos is where like the, the kind of the veils fall drop a little bit and all these people just hang out, I guess, and eat pate and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, plot, uh, I guess they don't plot on how to run the world. That's a conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They talk so. about, yeah, how to implement strategies to harness global potentialities and reconfigure, uh, you know, networks. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. Create, they, 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 they talk about how to contribute to a great impact. Um, yeah, they want yeah, a great uh, impact. Also, it should be mentioned that like the co-author of the Great Reset is Prince Charles, <laughs> who, uh, who, uh, talk, hmm. speaking of conspiracy theories, his fa- his father, uh, you know, what's his name, Prince uh, Philip, once said in an interview that if he you know, if he believes in reincarnation, he should like to come back as a deadly virus that would wipe out a huge chunk of the world population to solve the overpopulation problem that he cared so deeply about. Hmm. So that guy's son is going to do the great reset for us and it's going to be great. Um, well, you know, Prince Charles actually is supposed to be a secret Muslim or that's like one, you know, uh, idea that's uh, often floated is that prince charles is actually uh you know a, a convert to islam because he is you know uh i guess an admirer of, of sufism or you know someone hmm. who has showed interest in islam in the past so uh well i yeah, mean he's of, uh, he's probably i not to get your hopes up maybe, he's probably doing an insight maybe the great reset is going to be a caliphate you know, mm, um, I think he's just I have to say he's probably doing an insight role. He is probably a blood drinking Satanist who is related to Dracula. So, um, mm, right. I yeah. I mean, but I yeah. yeah, aren't all the uh, Windsors. I mean, it's they claim they claim to be sides. They claim to be related to Muhammad. Um, you know, the, I, uh, the I don't know I about mean, Muhammad to everyone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, uh, like you know, yeah, that's definitely something that I've heard floated, uh, you know, but I mean, there's a lot of science out there. Um, but yeah, um, that's interesting <laughs> that he wrote the uh, the Great Reset. But yeah, he's uh, one of the original uh, secret Muslims, uh, even before Obama, I think. Um, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 He um, just wants sustainable economic growth. And you know what? I mean, he'll be the, he presumably is going to be the king uh, any year now. At least for a little while. Uh, wow, maybe really? he won't. I didn't know that. I don't he know. Will? Maybe uh, I don't follow the royal intrigue. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. Like an American simp like that. I, I don't. Yeah, exactly. I don't track their their little palace intrigues. I haven't watched the Crown, right, yeah. so I have no idea. I was just really. saying, like, it's. I wonder, like, what do you think is more pathetic, like Americans who like simp for the UK or people from the UK who simp for America? I think that actually Americans who simp for the UK is probably worse because, like, I mean, they're already kind of our vassal state, so it's like natural that that would inculcate some, like, you know simpery and admiration and kind of like you know desire and uh you know uh subservience to america but like to do the other way around i feel like it's really perverse i don't know but it, it really is hard to they're say both, it's really hard to say they're both pretty yeah. pretty cringe but yeah, yeah. um okay. well all right I yeah think, well uh, uh i guess yeah. it's you know Stay warm out there. Uh, yeah, it's a dark winter. Take some vitamin we're D. In it. It's it, yeah, we're in it, and there's gonna D. be a. It's gonna be a great reset. It's gonna be great. Um, it's gonna it's, be a beautiful reset. Yeah, it's certainly yeah. not the beautiful continuation that we were promised. Uh, instead, we're in for a reset. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we're hitting that um, big Hillary Clinton reset button. Yes. On, um, on 
not on I don't know yeah. not stakeholder capitalism to have a great future of stakeholder uh, capitalism. yeah we'll see what happens this episode will probably actually be heard or be released like significantly after this uh, you know as we said very uh, portentous astrological event that's happening tomorrow night of the solstice plus grand conjunction uh, mm-hmm. very very mm-hmm. rare you know probably something that hasn't happened for centuries I would think uh that those two things have coincided uh so yeah watch out you know uh hopefully this will be be released and you know tomorrow a bunch of giants won't emerge uh (laughs) or phaetonians coming from their their underground layer yeah or blue blue uh, beam situation uh mm -hmm. yeah um fingers crossed fingers yeah crossed, i mean so. the blue beam will be especially bright in the dark winter um yes yeah. yes the that blue dnc like dnc blue you know like it's gonna be yeah build build back blue um build back better blue. yeah but you know uh like uh yeah take your vitamin d like try to you know uh cut people some slack for being insane around the pandemic because you know everyone's going through it it's a nightmare like you know uh so uh yeah yeah, yeah. um it's think of it's it's wearing on everybody and mm-hmm. uh might be like the largest like psyop campaign in human history so you know let's be mm-hmm. let's be compassionate to one another let's be generous yeah you know it's yeah quite let's uh you know let's all come t- during this yule tide let's all mm-hmm. come together and, and hold hands from maga pandemic people to you know stay stay the fuck inside uh <laughs> you know uh hectoring school marms uh, people that still have warren yeah. stickers on their car um yeah oh god yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, all of us yeah, that, we can just yeah. that's uh can huddle yeah, together that's, Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, Abutor, you know, like, uh, I'm just picturing, like, a bunch of, like, you know, like, yeah, like, MAGA people and, like, fucking Warren people, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Yeah, although <laughs> I guess right, that well, wouldn't be socially distanced, so that's already no, something. No. See, we can't even do this, yeah, you know. Eh. What? Anyway. Do what, do what you gotta do. I'll put it that way, um, you know? Yeah. Um whatever but just uh yeah and then we'll um, get a little rest and we'll uh, figure out what to do about the great reset on yeah. the other side of this very interesting year yeah so yeah that's true yeah yeah uh, yeah so uh yeah happy yeah. uh holidays i don't want to say happy solstice any satanists out there but you yeah know, if you're celebrating it yeah, in the white magic way i guess i guess yeah happy holidays yeah, yeah i guess uh yeah happy uh right you know uh like all those other holiday you know all the all those kufar holidays that people are celebrating <laughs> um yeah sure sure I guess, yeah. I guess it's Shabi Yalda, uh, the Persian sometimes, you know, celebrate. Okay. Uh, right. Yalda well, night. That's cool. Uh, Yalda. Um, okay. Yeah. I uh, don't really observe myself, uh, but yeah. Uh, although enough. I get, you know, yeah. Uh, I get, yeah, Persians of all varieties too. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, There's a chela okay. around this time, 40 day period of retreat and fasting. If you, you know, if you're Dope. doing that, then you're probably not listening, but. Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> right all right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, um, we'll we'll see y'all on the other side of uh, probably on 
2020. Um, yeah. Or not. Um, but, uh, you know, have a not super dark uh, new year. And uh, until next time, dear listeners, uh, stay vigilant. Today is the shadow of tomorrow. Today is the present future of yesterday. Yesterday is the shadow of today. The darkness of the past is yesterday. And the light of the past is yesterday. The days of yesterday are all numbered and some. And the word once. Because once upon a time there was a yesterday. Yesterday belongs to the dead. Because the dead belongs to the past. The past is yesterday. Today is the preview of tomorrow, but for me, only from a better and happier point of view. My point of view is the thought of a better and try. Reality, yesterday is eternity. The eternity of yesterday is dead. Yesterday is as one. The eternity of one is the eternity of the past. The past is once upon a time. Once upon a time is past. The past is yesterday. Today. The past is yesterday. Today. 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 While we're searching for tomorrow. The music is different here. The vibrations are different. Not like Planet Earth. Planet Earth sound of guns, anger, frustration. There was no one to talk to about Planet Earth to understand. We set up a colony here. The light of the past is the light which was. The wisdom of the past is the light of the past. The light of the future was the light which is to be. The wisdom of the future was the light of the future, see? Yesterday belongs to the dead. Tomorrow belongs to the living. The past is certified as a finished product. Anything which is ended is finished. That which is perfect is finished. The perfect man is no exception to the rule. The perfect man of the past is made according to the rule of the past. The rule of the past is a law of injustice and hypocrisy. The revelation of the meaning of the law is revealed through the law itself. Past is the light of the past, the light which is to be the wisdom of the future. The light of the future casts the shadows of tomorrow. Effective vibrations for the better for us. Sun Ra. Sun Ra. Lord Quas. Mad Live. That would be where the altar dust.